Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Before we get to Persis, I just want to give you all a quick reminder that the Effective Altruism Global Conference is coming up in San Francisco in late June. There's also a smaller spin-off conference focused on effective altruism in Sydney coming this September. Uh, you can find out more about both of them and potentially apply to attend at eaglobal.org. Also, it's been a while since I've mentioned that you should definitely uh, take a minute to think about uh, whether you're listening to this show at quite the right speed. Uh, If you find your attention drifting, um, you might like to speed it up a bit. While if if you're finding it hard to follow, uh, you might want to slow it down perhaps to, you know, 90% 90 or 80% of its actual speed. If you're somehow uh, listening to podcasts in such a way that you can't just go and uh, and play with its speed, I think you're uh, making a huge mistake. Almost all uh, podcasting apps, I think at this point, uh, allow you to pick the pick the ideal speed for, for each show that you listen to. And I've, I've actually gone through and set individual optimal speeds for, for all of the 30 shows that I subscribe to. Um, and over the years, uh, it's probably saved me, saved me weeks of my life. But if, that's, if that sounds intimidating, you can at least start by adjusting the speed on this show to kind of uh, balance saving your time, uh, maintaining your attention and, and ensuring that you uh, have, good, have good comprehension of it. Also, just to let you know, there's a quick discussion between me and two of my colleagues, uh, Neil Bowerman and Michelle Hutchinson, at the end of the show, including some ideas they have for tackling wild animal welfare that uh, didn't come up in the interview with Persis. All right, here's Persis. Today, I'm speaking with Persis Eskander. Persis is a researcher at the Open Philanthropy Project in their farm animal welfare program. And prior to joining the Open Philanthropy Project, Persis co-founded and managed a small nonprofit focused on improving wild animal welfare. That project recently merged with Utility Farm to create the Wild Animal Initiative, whose goal is to understand and improve the lives of animals in the wild, though Persis is not involved in that project. Before that, she spent several years as an analyst at the Australian Department of Defence, and she has a BA in philosophy and a Bachelor of Laws from the University of New South Wales in Australia. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Persis. Thanks. It's really great to be here. All right. Yeah. So I hope to get to talk about wild animal welfare uh, as a problem and I guess what might, be, what might be done about it in the future. But first, uh, what are you actually doing now at the Open Philanthropy Project and uh, why do you think it's uh, valuable work? Uh, yeah, so as you said, I'm now working as a researcher for the Farm Animal Welfare Program team. And so the Farm Animal Welfare team at Openfield gives about $30 million a year to effective uh, farm animal advocacy organizations. And I do research that helps support Lewis and Amanda uh, make grant-making decisions and, and figure out where they want to give. What are the biggest differences with uh, with what you were doing before at uh, Wild Animal Suffering Research? So one of the biggest differences is that I'm not managing a project anymore, which is actually a huge relief to me. I've realized that I much more prefer being a member of a team than actually leading a project and then obviously there's a shift in cause area so now I do my day-to-day work with farmed animals as opposed to working on wild animals. Cool so I'm hoping to get Lewis, Lewis Ballard uh, back on the program at some point in the next six months so so we might uh, skip on that one and uh, move on to talking about the, the meat of the conversation today which is uh, yeah wild animal welfare. I guess how would you sum up the, the, the challenge of uh, wild animal welfare? Yeah, so most people, um, and I was one of these people uh, at one point in time, have this romanticized view of what life is like in nature. We tend to have this sense that it's really idyllic. But in reality, wild animals have a whole range of really negative experiences. So they could be hunted, attacked, or predated on. There's often intense resource competition. And so starvation or chronic hunger is very common for a lot of animals. And things like disease, parasitism, and injury don't receive any treatment. And so basically, the reality for uh, life in the wild is that it's full of a lot of really intense experiences 
that we don't fully understand because we've eliminated them uh, for ourselves. One thing that's like worth keeping in mind as well is that, I mean, nature isn't like good or bad. It doesn't say anything about happiness or suffering. What we can do to get a better sense of what experiences wild animals have is look at what drives our existence and then figure out from those, what experiences are, are animals most likely to have as a result? And so, for example, you know, if we look at ev evolutionary selection, what we end up seeing is that what drives our existence is something like survival of the fittest. And so that basically means that the strongest end up surviving and those who don't end up meeting that high bar, there's no help for them. There's no treatment. There's no solution. They just have these negative experiences and then they die. Yeah, so briefly, just at the start, let's run through the kind of importance, neglected and tractability points in our like problem selection framework uh, one by one. What is the kind of scale or, or importance of kind of wild animal welfare, I suppose, which like caches out to like how many wild animals are there and kind of uh, how much uh, how much like suffering or how much misfortune do, do, do they suffer? Yeah, so we don't really have a very good sense of how many animals there actually are. Um, what we do have are some estimates. Uh, and so I think the most recent estimates or the only estimates that I've seen have been done by George Ray and Brian Tomasic, and they estimate something like uh, one quadrillion uh, wild vertebrates and one sextillion uh, wild invertebrates, which is just orders of magnitude greater than the number of farmed animals and humans. Even if we combine the two, it's still orders of magnitude greater. Hey, listeners, I just wanted to jump in and define vertebrate and invertebrate because I know a lot of people, as it turns out, I don't, don't know what those things are. Uh, so vertebrates are animals that have a, kind of a, a backbone or, or a spine, which includes kind of uh, all of the mammals, marsupials, obviously, fish, uh, birds, um, reptiles, that kind of thing. So, so most, of the, most of the big land animals that, that we're familiar with are also whales, of course. Um, then uh, invertebrates are actually uh, far more numerous in terms of the number, number of species that they have. And they're um, a whole separate kind of evolutionary tree of species that, that never developed this kind of backbone structure. So, so that includes uh, insects, um, arachnids, uh, mollusks, crustaceans, uh, corals, um, crabs, and, and velvet worms, and jellyfish, and all of those kind of things, uh, things that don't have spines. All right, I'll uh, leave that there. Get back to the show. And again, we don't really have a very good sense of how severe uh, the negative experiences that they have are or how subjectively bad it is for them to actually have these negative experiences. But what we can do is think about the total number of wild animals. And if we, for example, aggregate the amount of negative experiences across all of these wild animals, then what we end up with is a problem on a scale, you know, so much larger than any other problem in the near term. Okay, uh, so moving on from the scale, uh, neglectedness, like how many people are kind of working on this problem, both indirectly and directly, and kind of what's what's the kind of budgets of all of the organizations that think about it? Yeah, so it's pretty clearly a neglected problem. If I were to guess, I would say there were something like less than 20 people who are actually working on this problem, meaning people who are, you know, focused on wild animal welfare. But even most of those aren't working full time. If we're talking resources, then I'd guess that there's something like less than a million a year combined across all of these organizations. Okay, yeah, and the, the tractability, perhaps the hardest one to measure or hardest one to know at this early stage. Yeah, so it's really uncertain what sort of solutions we have to the problem. I mean, it's a large, complex problem. And I think that it's, it's not clearly the case that wild animal welfare is tractable, but it's also not clearly the case that it's not. And so I think we're kind of at this early exploratory stage where we're trying to better understand the problem and figure out if it's even possible 
for us to do something about it. And if it is, the sort of things we'd want to do would be net positive in the long run. They'd be cost effective and they'd be the sorts of interventions that could be really easily accepted and adopted. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to the to the tractability issue later on. Just first, so you, so you mentioned like these very large numbers of, of animals. Do we have any sense of like, are these very big animals or very small animals? I guess it's mostly small animals. And so maybe like rather than talking about the number of them, it might be more sensible to talk about like their, their weight or like the number of brain cells or something that they have. So to make it like a more, more fair comparison with like farm animals and, and humans. Yeah, so if you break down the scale of wild animals in terms of abundance, then what you do end up seeing is that the main drivers of the figures tend to be much smaller animals. And those are fish, arthropods like insects and spiders, or aquatic arthropods like crustaceans, and uh, worms. If we try and break it down differently, so if we look at biomass, there was a really interesting paper that was released in 2017 that is called The Biomass Distribution on Earth. And they basically do something similar. They try and break out the biomass of different animal and plant life. And what we end up finding is that invertebrates still dominate uh, the equation, but they dominate by a much smaller ratio. So we end up with 0.7 gigatons of carbon for wild vertebrates and 1.7 gigatons of carbon for invertebrates. So it's only one order of magnitude greater. If we look at it by a neuron count, then we get still the same breakdown, but again, the ratio is much smaller. So Georgia Ray did a really, really interesting small project running the numbers for the total number of neurons of wild animals. And again, broke it down into different categories. I think her post is called, uh, how many neurons are there? And she estimates something like, I mean, again, these are massive numbers, but it's like 44 sextillion neurons for wild vertebrates and 217 uh, sextillion neurons for invertebrates. So again, we get like a much smaller ratio when we try and like look at different measures for the scale of wild animals. Yeah. Do you have any sense of uh, how those numbers compare to, you know, the weights and the like uh, neural um, masses for uh, like all farm animals and say all humans put together? They are smaller still. But again, I think we see like a pretty similar trend when we compare the numbers of wild animals to humans and farmed animals. The ratio is much larger than biomass, which is also much larger than neurons. And that is like what you would expect, because if even though the total number of humans is lower than the total number of wild animals, because the total number of wild animals Uh, is largely dominated by very small, not very complex animals, the neuron count ends up showing like a smaller ratio between the two. I gave a talk at EA Global last year that has a more detailed breakdown of these figures. um, So that might be a great place to to get more information. Hey, listeners. Uh, At that point, uh, I I found that uh, talking about uh, tables of numbers uh, doesn't tend to make for for great conversation on the show. Uh, So we kind of punted on digging down into the exact numbers of all of the different categories of animals. But fortunately, I've uh, gone and dug up some some tables of that uh, so, so i can walk you through it now if, if you're not interested in this you can uh, skip forward a couple of minutes but i think there's uh, really some quite remarkable things here so uh these numbers have been collated by uh, brian tomasic who has a, has an interest in uh, animal and wild animal welfare and i'll put up a link to, to the articles that we've drawn these numbers from brian would be the first person to say that a lot of these numbers are very tentative because uh, we just don't have a have a great way of counting uh the numbers or you know weighing the mass of uh, lots of these different categories of animals but nonetheless, uh, you know, we can make some very broad uh, guesses or maybe maybe some, you know, uh, guesstimates of, uh, of these kind of numbers. And even if they're right in broad strokes, they can be uh, potentially much, much better than having no idea at all. 
Uh, so I'm going to, I think, give all of the ratios uh, just in terms of the number, well, get the comparison for that group compared to um, humans. So we've got uh, 8 billion humans and... Um, the mass of them is about 8 billion times by 60 kilograms each on average. So you can kind of get, get a sense of, uh, of, of how, how large they are. So lab animals, there is about 1% as many uh, lab animals as there are humans. So we've got 8 billion humans and about 100 million lab animals. Uh, that's only, uh, only including the vertebrates. Then uh, for livestock, uh, which in- includes like land um, uh, vertebrates, we've got about three times as many of them as we have of humans. For birds, uh, there's about 25 times as many birds as there are humans. For mammals as a whole, there's um, 38 times as many as there are of humans. Reptiles, 125. Uh, Amphibians, 125 again. Then for fish, we've jumped up to 12,500 times as many uh, fish as there are humans. Earthworms, 125,000 times as many as there are humans. And then, then we get down to kind of uh, smaller, um, potentially less, less significant uh, creatures. So dust mites, uh, 125,000 again. Uh, coral polyps, uh, 1.25 million. And then uh, going all the way down to nematodes, these tiny, tiny creatures, uh, 12 billion, 500 million is, is the estimate in terms of the, the raw number. I think uh, broadly one thing we can just take away from that is that there are vastly more uh, wild animals in, in many of these different categories than there are humans or indeed uh, all, all animals that, that, that humans are farming uh, really by, by a very long way. But then you might think, well, I mean, obviously a lot of the, almost all of those species are much smaller than, than humans. So you'd be uh, reasonable to think, well, we should actually think about this in terms of uh, relative weight. So let's go, go through those estimates to uh, take, take a guess at um, what the weight is of these different uh, classes of um, animals c- compared to humans. So at the lower end, we've got uh, elephants alone, uh, 0.25% uh, the, the total weight of all humans. Then adding up all of the uh, wild vertebrates, it's only uh, 10% as much as, as humans, which is uh, kind of surprising to me. But in the ocean, you've got a whole lot more. Uh, whales alone are 30% the weight of all humans. And then if you uh, got all of the fish together, they weigh about the same as the entire human population. But then uh, if you move beyond vertebrates, which it turns out are pretty, pretty insignificant in the scheme of, of life on Earth, both, both, in, both in terms of uh, numbers and weight, invertebrates in the ocean uh, weigh collectively about 10 times as much as, as all humans do, uh, while invertebrates on the land are about uh, 20 times uh, the weight of, of all humans. Then uh, if you add up all of, the, all of the funguses out there, which I guess a lot of them uh, are under the soil, it's about 100 times uh, the weight of all, of all people. Then if you look at prokaryotes, which are these kind of single-celled organisms or, or very basic organisms, now we get some, some really staggering numbers. So uh, yeah, prokaryotes, these very, yeah, very tiny you know, microscopic organisms in the water weigh about 175 times. Uh, the weight of all humans, according to this, to this estimate, prokaryotes in the soil are about 500 times the weight of uh, of humans. Other prokaryotes underneath just the soil on land, uh, 2,500 times, and then uh, prokaryotes underneath the soil on the sea, 3,750 times the weight of all humans. I, I did not I did not predict those numbers, and I'm not quite sure what to make of the fact that there's tons of these tiny single-celled organisms out there. Uh, really, just a, a vast weight of them. But I thought I thought that was a pretty interesting and surprising. Perhaps the the thing that's uh, more important to take away from this is just that the weight of all uh, invertebrates is uh, vastly larger than the weight of all uh, vertebrate animals, like kind of birds and birds and reptiles and uh, mammals, uh, including humans. Okay, now another thing that I would really love to know here is kind of the weight of all of the all of the brains of the creatures in these different categories, which might give us some kind of proxy for 
their moral weighting. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find a good uh, summary table of that um, to even give me kind of uh, rough guidance. Uh, one thing uh, that is interesting to note is that uh, invertebrates, like uh, insects, have a larger fraction of their mass as, as neurons, and they also tend to have denser brains. So they have kind of more complexity in each, in each gram of brain uh, in, in, in ants than there is in humans, interestingly. Uh, perhaps because they're so small, they have to kind of evolve more rigorously to kind of cram as much computation as they can into these, into these very tiny brains. So uh, not only have we got the, the fact that um, invertebrates already weigh uh, collectively, you know, something like 30 times uh, the weight of all humans, the, the weight of the brains in all these invertebrates is going to be more than 30 times the weight of the brains in all, in all humans. But unfortunately, I, I haven't got figures for all of the other, all of the other categories. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to return to that uh, some other time on the show. I have, however, managed to get the kind of total uh, size of all of the brains of uh, various different farm animals com- compared to humans. And those animals include uh, chickens, sheep, uh, pigs, and cows. And again, to, to, to my surprise, it turns out that uh, if you take the, the brains of kind of all you know, humans, chickens, sheep, pigs, and cows, about 90% of the weight of the brains is, is actually uh, in, in the humans. Um, so you've got uh, chickens uh, making up only 1% of the, of the brain mass of uh, all of those creatures and, and cows uh, about 6%. So uh, the fact that humans just have um, you know, larger brains as a, as a fraction of their uh, body is, is uh, doing, a, doing a lot of work there. Then finally, uh, just for a handful of species, that is uh, humans, cows, and uh, chickens, Carl Schulman has uh, managed to uh, look at the number of neurons uh, that are in each brain. So taking account of kind of the, the, the neural density, not, not just going with weight, but kind of counting the actual number of the potentially um, a correlate of the, of the processing capacity of these brains. And that actually doesn't, doesn't shift things all that much. You end up with about 98% of the neurons in all uh, humans, cows, and chickens uh, in the world uh, being in humans, and then about one percent in cows uh, and one percent in chickens, and I'll, I'll link to the to the blog post where um, you've got the calculations for that. It's all all pretty rough and ready, but obviously when you're talking about something being a hundred times bigger than than something else, and the um, you know measurements here being fairly reasonable, it's not going to be not going to be dramatically different from that. I, I don't expect unless uh, unless there's kind of a, a major hidden error in here somewhere. All right, I'll link to the sources for all those numbers so you can uh, pour over them uh, a little bit more carefully uh, than listening to, to me me go through them. Um, and we'll get back to Persis. Yeah, okay, so there's an awful lot of white animals. What do we know, if, if anything, about, about their welfare? What, what are their lives like? Yeah, so unfortunately, we actually don't know a huge amount about the welfare of wild animals. There is some research, mostly in animal welfare science, um, and that tends to focus a lot more on domestic species uh, or sort of working animals or farmed animals. But they do have some interesting tools or models that we can use to better understand the welfare of wild animals. So, for example, one is the five domains model, which looks at four physical states. I think they're uh, health, environment, nutrition and behavior and one mental state, which is just how they respond when they feel distress, anger, happiness, or when they're content. Um, So those are really interesting because we can use those to try and understand the signals that animals send when they feel various like negative or positive experiences. Another tool that also comes from animal welfare science is trying to test uh, for an animal's revealed preferences. And so, for example, if you sort of measure the amount of effort that a rabbit goes to to access food, that might be sort of proportional to how uh, bad it might be for them to experience hunger. So we kind of are hoping to sort of build more of these tools or get a wider range of these models that we can use to figure out how we can better assess the experiences that wild animals have and how bad they are for those animals. But right now, there's just very little research 
specifically for wild animals. And whatever we do have is on such a small scale that it's really very hard to rely on it and to like make accurate judgments from it. Um, and so one thing I'd love to see is more research focused on that. What are the key activities or experiences that you think like generate a lot of suffering or, or, or pleasure for wild animals that, that people might not, not fully appreciate? Animals basically make trade-offs in terms of how they spend their energy. Uh, so they will spend large amounts of time looking for food. Um, but once they've found access to food and water, they spend a lot of time resting. It's usually not the case that they're extremely active or like engage in a lot of play because that costs resources and those tend to be reserved. It's probably likely that animals spend quite a lot of time finding appropriate shelter or preserving their shelter so that it's not taken from them. And then there are things that like like parasitism and disease or injury, which I don't really have a good sense how frequent they are in the wild, but to the extent that they do exist, they tend to spread through populations and they become quite chronic. Uh, so it's likely that when there is you know, parasitism prevalent in a very social group of animals, that that's something that they're all experiencing or a large population of them are experiencing. Is there a danger that we might think that wild animals' lives are, are worse than they actually are if, if we kind of just imagine how we as, as humans would feel if we were put into their situation and obviously we're like not adapted to, to cope with those situations and, and would maybe, maybe find them more unpleasant than, than wild animals actually do? Uh, yeah, I think it is a concern that if we try and extrapolate um, the experiences of wild animals and apply them to ourselves, that we end up um, basically anthropomorphizing their experiences. I think it's a pretty useful tool to help people establish, um, you know, the basis of empathy for the sorts of experiences wild animals could be having. And so it's maybe better as a communication strategy than as like the basis on which we, you know, design our research or design any possible interventions. When we're talking about what we actually want when we're trying to figure out how we can help wild animals, then I think we need to be um, a lot more robust um, and ask questions like how adverse are these experiences actually for wild animals based on the signals they tell us, or for example, what are their revealed preferences? And we can use those to try and develop policies that are maybe like steeped in more accurate judgments of what they're actually experiencing. Do you think that wild animals would be better off if we eliminated kind of all parasites and like all of the, yeah, all of the like diseases or like yeah, parasites that, that they're suffering from, or if we kind of got rid of uh, all of the predators, um, hypothetically, that, 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 that were hunting them? Do, do we have any sense of like how much badness comes from, from these different categories? So that's kind of a tough question to answer. I think in a hypothetical world where there are like no philosophical objections to uh, something like that, and we managed to confidently resolve any concerns we would have about how to actually implement a policy like that. I'd expect that the main concern would be that we just don't understand the flow-through effects for the ecosystem. I mean, we don't understand the flow-through effects of the entire elimination of something like predation or parasitism, and we don't even understand what that's like for partial or restricted elimination. And so I think it's like because of these uncertainties that we wouldn't actually ever recommend a policy like that. One thing we could do is look at historical cases of traffic cascades to try and get a better sense of what the effects of something like this might be. Hey, listeners. I just wanted to uh, quickly interrupt to explain uh, what traffic cascades are because I actually didn't know and, and had to look it up. So uh, trophic levels are kind of different levels within an ecosystem in terms of uh, what, what's eating what. I think trophic is originally a Greek for Greek for eating. So the lowest trophic level is going to be plants that photosynthesize. Then you've got herbivores that eat the plants. Then the, then the next trophic level up is going to be um, carnivores that, that eat the herbivores. And then above that, you've got carnivores that eat other carnivores. And of course, at, at each trophic level, you're losing most of the most of the energy. So they become more and more uh, uh, rare uh, creatures or they have less and less mass. 
Now, a trophic cascade apparently is where you, for example, you get uh, predators that eat herbivores, perhaps to, to the point where, there, where there's very few of them. And then that affects the level below potentially. So you get like, then you get the, the plants pr- proliferating because there aren't so many herbivores eating them. And you can also get uh, something in the other direction. For example, if if the trees that herbivores are eating uh, did disappear, then that will also affect the the, the, the trophic levels higher up. The the, the animals that, that are eating the herbivores. But the basic point of uh, trophic cascades, and you can go go read about them on Wikipedia. We'll uh, we'll stick up the link. Is just that you can get kind of unpredictable effects um, uh, between like different trophic, trophic levels that are, that are further away from from the one that you're actually operating on. Uh, basically, it kind of uh, echoes out across the, across these different levels. I think the yeah, things that you do with with uh, with one traffic level affect ones uh, several several layers away. All right, back to the show. So for example, there has been the removal of predators in many populations, in many areas, particularly as a result of urbanization or industrial agriculture. And then there's also been like rewilding experiments, like reintroducing wolves into Yellowstone National Park. I mean, hypothetically, like in a scenario where we create this kind of trophic cascade, say removing predators, we might expect to see something like the prey population balloons. Um, and as a result of growing so much, the um, ratio of food to the prey population is reduced. And so what we end up seeing is something like increased resource competition. And that might mean that animals are no longer being predated, but now there is um, an increased amount of aggression within species or across species, and that maybe animals are now dying as a result of starvation as opposed to being predated on. Another effect we might expect is that once populations grow, they become much denser and that allows parasites to flourish. And what we might end up seeing with really dense populations that weren't once that dense is that also parasitism crosses species. And a lot of animals that weren't, that haven't become accustomed or haven't built um, appropriate immune mechanisms end up, I guess, suffering a significant amount more as a result of that. So it's not actually very clear that it would be net positive to eliminate something that we think is a harm because we don't really understand the full effects as a result of that. One reason I was asking that is because it's like it's what's well, easy to see how if you got rid of predators, then this like potentially creates a population explosion, like people raise this specter all the time. And then it's like, well, rather than being predated upon, instead, they're just starving or like on the margin, like some animals are starving because something has to limit the population's growth. But it seems like potentially like parasites keep their hosts alive a lot of time, but might make, might make their lives really miserable. So it might be that like the amount of suffering that you get rid of relative to the amount of like the population increase that you get might be like a lot more limited. So it just like perhaps doesn't cascade into like you know other other animals or just doesn't create broader broader changes. It just kind of gets rid of this like gut worm or whatever thing that's like uh, gnashing away at their at their flesh, like, but for like some substantial fraction of their life. You're right. you're, you're looking skeptical. You're like <laughs> Rob. You're, I mean, you're you're naive. Who knows what it, what what effects these these so changes would have? It's like it's a nice theoretical argument and I would be really interested in people studying this more I'd be really interested in actually you know a constrained environmental study of like what happens if you remove a particular parasite from a population and then seeing what the effect of that might be I think one reason I am skeptical is that there are lots of trophic effects that we just don't understand. And even now through the like reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone, there are things that ecologists are discovering as a result of that, that they didn't actually expect would be um, an effect of reintroducing them. So it's more that I'd be pretty surprised if the solution to, or, you know, if the way to increase wild animal welfare was to engage in this like large scale elimination practice, I think it's more likely to be the case that we uh, actually implement a lot of really small 
different policies that address like incremental parts of the problem and then amount to, you know, a large ratio of the problem because those are less likely to be risky for ecosystem health. Cool. So we'll, uh, I guess, return to this like question of, of how likely this stuff is, is, is to backfire later. I'm perhaps like a little bit more gung-ho than you are. But I suppose you've been in the actual area, so you like <laughs> have more knowledge about how things can go wrong. It's very easy to be naive about it from, from my distant perspective. But I, guess I know people who are worried about what animal welfare tend to focus particularly on certain kinds of uh, species. I guess like insects tend to, tend to loom uh, pretty large. Do you want to like explain for, for people uh, why that is? Yeah, so I would say that the argument like largely comes from looking at life history strategies. So the general idea is that animals that live really short lives, we might expect will also have negative lives. And the basis is that basically, so life history theory suggests that Animals have to make trade-offs with their energy budgets. And for a lot of species, the reproduction trade-off they make is quantity versus complexity. Uh, so for example, frogs will lay something like six to 20,000 eggs um, in one season. And then once they're spawned, the, the female frog really leaves them largely unprotected to just develop hatch and then as tadpoles to continue their development largely on their own. Um, and so because they're unprotected, uh, large numbers of them will end up dying at very early stages. But for the female, it's a more efficient strategy because she invests less resources in gestation and in care, and that allows her to have more reproductive sessions throughout her life. So what we end up seeing is that there are like a very small number of animals in each uh, season that will survive, but the large majority of them are just not equipped um, or don't have enough access to resources or basically are just predated. And so they live for a very short period of time, sometimes days, sometimes weeks, and then they die. And so if we think of the quality of an animal's life in terms of the number of positive experiences they have versus the number of negative experiences they have, it's pretty unlikely if they've lived for a really short period of time that they've amassed enough positive experiences to outweigh what we expect to be the very negative experience of death. And so because the most numerous animals follow this uh, life history strategy and the most numerous animals are all short-lived, we might expect that when we look at the, I guess, net sign of the lives of wild animals as a whole, the lives of short-lived animals dominate. Okay, so if I'm like a human or a whale, then I'm like, every offspring is precious and I hope to like get a large fraction of them to, to adulthood. But if I'm like an insect, then I'm like, I'm going to lay a thousand babies and then like hope that one of them manages to, to, to get through. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for long run population <clears throat> maintenance or for like a constant long run stable population, you really only need the parents to be replaced by offspring. So when you have, you know, spiders laying a thousand eggs, we would have like a constant um, overrun of animals if the majority of them ended up surviving. And so you would expect that every season the majority of them actually end up dying. Yeah. So it's like, I think hunter-gatherers had like a 30% infant mortality rate. Whereas I guess like spiders, it's like 99.9%. So it's like a thousand, like yeah. a thousand die for everyone that makes it through. Yeah, um, exactly. So this means that well, this would be an argument that like there's more suffering in nature than there is pleasure. If I guess we think that these like, well, I guess one thing would be they've got to be conscious, these like small creatures. And then like conscious to some significant extent, I guess, including these like tiny offspring that might not be like yet fully developed. And I guess also it has to be the case that like they actually do suffer when they're dying or they like don't enjoy like whatever food they eat during the, like, their very brief lives enough to offset the like pain of dying. Uh, do I guess do we have like any sense on like weighing up those weighing up those questions or do you just want to like uh, pump that to, to future research? 
I mean, I think they're pretty, they're big open questions that we don't really have answers to. I mean, one thing that I really want to see people who are working on this or people who might be interested in working on this doing is getting a better sense of, do we know whether these animals actually experience well, actually, if they have uh, morally relevant experiences, and if they do, at what point? I mean, a large part of what makes this like argument compelling is that we expect juvenile animals to also be as sentient as adults, and it's really not clear that. For I mean, for example, like at what point do we determine that like an animal in development is complex enough to be able to experience something like pain? I mean, with oviparous animals, it's pretty complex as well because do we measure it from the moment the egg is laid? Do we measure it from the moment uh, the egg hatches? Do we measure it while animals are still in development? Um, there's like a lot of different phases, and it's really not clear when if at all, they develop like the capacity to feel pain. So these are like really important questions that I would love people to start working on. But unfortunately, I really don't have a good sense of what the answers to those might be right now. Yeah, this is the whole point that it's like very neglected. There's like not many people are looking into those questions. Yeah. Um, I guess did you say you said under 20, like you think of as like looking into all of this kind of all together. Does that include like academics who are kind of incidentally looking into it? Uh, no, so I'm not really including academics who are doing empirical work in biology that could be yeah, incidentally useful to what we're doing. I'm talking about people who are value aligned and really focused on trying to improve the welfare of wild animals. It sounds like there are like papers that you can draw from, from ecology or like other, other areas that like are actually quite useful here, but like weren't designed for that purpose. Yeah, but there's a limited number. I mean, there's, there's a lot of information out there. And so there would be a lot of value in doing a lot of literature reviews just to get a sense of what information we do have, um, so where the current state of knowledge is. But, I mean, it is limited in the sense that we only really get information on the reality of what happens. We don't get any assessment or analysis on what the welfare effects of certain experiences are um, or of certain events are. And that's what we really need more work on because we can't really make decisions as to whether or not animals have net negative or positive lives without having a better sense of whether or not they actually have experiences that would contribute to that. Yeah, that reminds me of, um, heard that, I guess you'd expect insects to be pretty stupid and I suppose in a sense they are, but they have apparently like a lot more of their body mass is, is brain than, than it is for us. So I guess like you think of humans as like having huge brains, but, it's, but apparently like ants, like just a, a crazy fraction of their entire body is their nervous system, right? Yeah, I think Georgia also recently published a post on this. I'm going to be referencing Georgia a lot, okay. a lot of great <laughs> research. Yeah, which, which found that it was surprising that small animals have large, larger brains relative to their body size. But it's not super clear what that means in terms of how complex those brains are and whether or not those brains are performing the sorts of functions that we would consider morally relevant as well. Yeah. Do, do you know what the kind of engineering reason is why like ants have to have such, such big brains compared to their, their legs and stuff? No, no unfortunately, yeah. I don't. But what I would love like to learn that. Yeah, I wonder if it's something like, well, in order to like take any actions, you have to have a brain of like a particular processing capacity. And like as the body gets smaller, you just like can't shrink the brain in like any anymore because uh, otherwise it just wouldn't be able to like act as an ant. Or, I don't know, something like that. Something like you get economies of scale on brain size that like our bodies like have kind of arms and legs like like ants do. Um, we're doing a whole lot of other stuff as well. But like there's kind of just a bare minimum amount of processing power, I guess. There were, could be something like that. Yeah, possibly. I do think that one thing that Georgia found in that 
in that post was that smaller brains are actually more efficiently designed so they can contain a lot more neurons in a smaller space. Um, and we had previously, well, I mean, before reading that post, I had previously thought that human brains were like the most efficiently designed in terms of like the folds of the brain and like the fact that we can contain so many neurons relative to the size. So that was, that's, that was really interesting. And I would be curious to learn if those brains being more efficient in terms of size means that they also uh, may be more complex than we had initially thought. I guess quickly to make things more concrete, are there any kind of illustrative ways that we could uh, try to help wild animals uh, today that like could conceivably actually be you know, you know, worth rolling out? Yeah. So I think, like I said, I wouldn't recommend a large scale actions right now, primarily just because we don't understand the flow through effects. But I do think there are a few short term things that we could be doing. So one thing I think is really promising is looking at the effects on wild animals of activities that humans already engage in. And there are a lot of these that don't really fall into any particular category. Like I call them the like problems that have fallen through the cracks. So for example, one might be, can we improve the way wild caught fish are slaughtered. That's really interesting because it intersects with the interests of people who also care about animals that are consumed, but it's not really farmed animal welfare and people often disregard fish or they're just like, they're not very charismatic. Um, we, you know, they're aquatic species, so we don't interact with them often. And so they're quite, they're kind of like a forgotten uh, category of, of animal. And so it'd be really interesting, I think, if we were thinking about, well, the current process is really inefficient. If fish have the capacity to suffer, and there's like a lot of evidence to suggest that they might, then why aren't we thinking of like better systems that can kill them painlessly? That would be like an incremental change in terms of like the whole problem, the whole like wild animal welfare issue. But it would still be a largely positive change because it would affect, I mean, billions of animals. And that's that's a huge change when you're just talking about like the standard scale of problems that we work on. Another one might be how can we improve the humaneness of like rodenticides and pesticides. There are a lot of animals that as a result of like urbanization now like live in cities, animals like pigeons, rats, to some extent, like foxes and squirrels as well in some places. And they're often animals that are subject to poisonous gases or baits to either deter them or to get rid of them. And those can be really cruel. They can be uh, pretty excruciating. Um, they die through like internal bleeding or organ failure or asphyxiation. And so it seems as though if people are not going to be happy sharing their homes with rats, then maybe we should find a way to more humanely reduce their populations or eliminate their populations. And one way we could do that is through immunocontraceptives. That would again be a pretty positive, like a robustly positive change for wild animals, but one that like doesn't really face the same issues that uh, the sorts of like large scale like interventions do. So what's an immunocontraceptive? My understanding is that it basically creates sterility through the immune system. So it kind of... Uh, like gets them to gets the immune system to destroy the testes or something exactly, like that. Exactly, yeah. It tricks the body into thinking that they are sort of mm. external and shouldn't function the way they are supposed to. It's tricks. That's like it's a clever. really... <laughs> it's a really terrible explanation for what actually happens, but <laughs> that's my layman's understanding. A third way, uh, which is one that I think not many people have paid attention to so far is like preventing the development of insect farming, especially if it begins to look at some point like it might be more cost effective than grain as feed for livestock. I actually don't think it is at that point. I'm not sure if it ever would get to that point. But if it did, then what we could end up doing is 
dramatically increasing the amount of suffering, presuming we think insects can suffer, if we started farming them on a massive scale uh, for feed. And since that's not something that we're doing right now, it seems like it would be easier to prevent it from becoming something that humans do than it would be to sort of try and backtrack once it's become you know, established in industrial agricultural practices. So yeah, those are just a few examples of things that I think we could pretty easily um, start working on now and that are like quite robustly positive. The low-hanging fruit is to just like avoid humans going in and making things worse. That's like yeah, the the like less controversial way that that we can uh, try to try to help wild animals. Yeah, basically, I think I mean the biggest considerations that stop us from doing large-scale work right now are population considerations. So we don't understand what large adjustments to populations will do. And since these focus on changes that we are already making, we're not contributing to that. We're just slightly changing what we're already doing at the same scale that we're doing it. I see. Okay. So you like, don't try to change population numbers. You just try to like change yeah, how much suffering there is involved in like the, the population level being changed in effect. Yeah, exactly. How does, oh, I suppose you've like switched from working on yeah white animals to, to working on, on farm animals mostly. How does this compare in terms of perhaps like expected impact or, or, or the nature of the work? Yeah, it's kind of hard to do a comparative analysis of the two, mostly because I think they're at totally different stages. I mean, the sort of work we're doing in farmed animal welfare focuses a lot on implementing really tractable, successful, like cost-effective interventions. The biggest like hurdle in, in farmed animal advocacy is probably resources and access to, to good quality research. But with wild animal welfare, it's a, it's at a totally different stage. It's such early days. And mostly what people are trying to do is just get a foundational understanding of the problem. I wouldn't really say uh, I would measure the impact of the work people do in wild animal welfare in terms of years of suffering reduced. It's more like how much value of information can we get from this, which in expectation we hope will reduce like a lot of years of suffering. Yeah. And so because they're at these different stages, it's kind of hard to sort of compare, you know, the impact that, that the two might have. I also just generally think they're both really important and that it doesn't really make a huge amount of sense to try and compare them because they're sort of two subsets of this like umbrella called, you know, animal welfare. And it basically our goal, regardless of which area you tend to focus on, is to just improve the welfare of animals as a whole. Um, and these are just like two different ways that we might try and do that. Yeah, what, what made you switch? So I think for me, it was uh, mostly that I felt my skills and my like personal fit was better in farmed animal work. I think ideally what we want for people who are working in wild animal welfare is for them to have a really strong background in life sciences. And that's unfortunately not me. Uh, so when I, when I started working on wild animal welfare, it was much less much more neglected than it is now. I mean, when I was working on it, I would say there was like less than $100,000 going into the field. But in the last two years, we've seen a lot of people who are really interested, who have backgrounds in zoology or backgrounds in ecology and biology, who have become really interested in doing this work. And I basically uh, want to give them the space to develop the research in the way that they think best, um, because they are the people that I hope will become domain experts. All right, let's let's move on to talking about some kind of common objections that, that people often raise and that potentially people people listening might, might be thinking about in their head. Yeah, are, are there any compelling arguments for humanity not dedicating uh, kind of much or any resources to um, trying to help out, help out wild animals that, that you think are like legitimate and that you take seriously? 
Yeah, I think there are probably a few compelling arguments. I mean, the most obvious one is that we're uncertain as to the sentience of animals. And I mean, if we expect that a core amount of the problem uh, focuses on the largest number of animals and the largest number of animals are also the least cognitively complex, then if we were to conclude that they weren't sentient, that would probably dramatically reduce the scale of the problem. And I think just on the question of sentience, I mean, it's pretty difficult to try and answer. I'm not sure how we would come to a confident conclusion one way or the other as to sentience. But like a great resource, for example, is a report that Openfield published a couple of years ago on consciousness and moral patienthood, which I think does a really excellent job of highlighting just how difficult it is to get a sense of what it means for an animal to have like morally relevant experiences. So that would probably be like a pretty compelling uh, case against uh, focusing on wild animal welfare. Another one might be that we don't actually know uh, how wild animals experience things like predation, injury, and disease. So there's like a case, for example, that it's just, I mean, as we discussed, it's not as bad as we think it is because they've developed coping mechanisms, because the, you know, chronic experiences for them are just less negative for some reason. It could also be that, for example, when animals experience some kind of severe bodily trauma, they enter shock and so they don't actually feel the pain. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which we just lack a lot of knowledge on what it means for animals to have experiences that we think would be bad for ourselves. And so that would be like a compelling case against uh, focusing on wild animal welfare if we thought that what we traditionally think of as negative experiences, we're not negative enough to sort of outweigh the positive experiences that we hope they're having. And so the ratio, if the ratio is much, much more balanced, then it might mean that it's just not as severe a problem as we thought. And then the last argument that I think is probably the most compelling one is that it's just too complex a problem to work on and that there's nothing we can really do about it. I've heard people, well, uh, actually, I think my mum talked at some point about uh, we, we, we have dogs and they like have cut themselves various times and then they get kind of surgery, get like stitched up. And she's remarked that they seem they, they're like running around like a day after the surgery and just like seem fairly unbothered. So I suppose some people think that like humans are just like extraordinarily wussy animals that, that like suffer much more. And I guess wild animals are like much uh, more capable of like dealing with the vicissitudes of life because maybe maybe the environment's just so much harsher that they, they kind of have to they don't want to be constantly like distracted and like unhappy about how bad things are i guess i'm, I'm kind of kind of skeptical of that yeah i mean uh, i guess like a contrary argument you could make is that just because animals don't express their distress in a way that's familiar to us or in the way that we would expect it doesn't mean they're not feeling it that it might actually be safer for animals to be better at hiding their injuries or be better at not signaling that they're weaker because it makes them less likely to be prey. And I mean, these are all like, it's obviously everything we talk about is really speculative. It's really hard to know if that is actually the case or not. But I would be wary of, I guess, into reading too much into whether or not animals express their pain in a way that we would expect because that might just be it might just be that we're overlooking something or there's just like a massive communication barrier there <laughs> they have a different love language right? yeah like suffering languages <laughs> in this case another one you raised was the question of like are, are these animals um sentient obviously like super hard question uh luke luke mohauser one of your uh, colleagues now at the open philanthropy project has written this this huge report that i think we've mentioned on the show before that we'll stick up a link to uh i guess if you have like 20 hours of spare time to to read through that and all the footnotes where they, they try to like figure out yeah do we have anything to go on here i think that the bottom line is yeah no we are like we are super uncertain and i guess people have different judgments i suppose i i, I find myself on the end of finding it like quite plausible like very plausible that most mammals for example and fish have feelings 
uh, and maybe even that I, that I take I take seriously perhaps more than most other people do than uh, that, that that insects might well uh, even have feelings although like I find that very hard to judge I guess did you find that people who are involved in this kind of project tend to be on like one side of the of the distribution on uh, how how likely they think it is that animals I guess and especially small animals are, are conscious I'm not sure I've I've heard people who have been working on this express the view that they're like more likely to give credence to small animals uh, having the capacity to feel pain and people who seem pretty confident that they don't and so tend to just want to focus on other solutions to the problem or focus on slightly larger species but species that are still pretty unpopular. My impression is that perhaps people who work in wild animal welfare are just more willing to follow the precautionary principle and just avoid inflicting harm if they can which doesn't necessarily say much about their probability that small animals uh, are sentient. But I think it's maybe they're willing to pay a higher cost, even if there is no payoff at the end. Yeah, so they're more just like running the math, you mean, or like willing to take a, take a big risk. Yeah, I mean, they're willing to sort of uh, make decisions that might be more costly or might mean that we don't do things that might be the most efficient thing that we do just because it could potentially cause harm but might actually end up having like zero positive impact because they're not capable like the animals we're trying to help are not capable of feeling harm the objection uh, I, I hear the most is the one that we've kind of already alluded to that like anything you do with the population numbers is going to backfire so you like you get rid of the predators to try to help the prey but then the prey like increase a number and then like they start eating other things or they yeah they make things worse in some other way yeah, it sounds like you you take that argument pretty seriously do you want to like kind of present it maybe in it's like in the strongest form so I guess I could sort of like run through a way in which it's quite difficult to understand the net sign of, of an intervention that we try and implement. So for example, Georgia, again, did a really interesting project looking at like the potential effects of replacing the consumption of fish by the creation of alternative or um, cultured fish products. And so if we look, for example, at like what this might mean for tuna fish, it becomes like really quite, quite complex when you go like at only one or two steps in. So tuna fish are both farmed and wild caught. And so the first assessment we would want to make is, well, are their farmed lives better than their wild lives? I mean, when they're farmed, they're in really close confinement. They um, often are susceptible to lice. They have like really uh, stressful delousing processes. And then there are no sort of humane provisions for handling transport and slaughter, which could often be, you know, just blunt force trauma or decapitation or asphyxiation. Also, they will live for about a year or less. In the wild, tuna fish can live up to 15 to 30 years. Obviously, they don't face problems like close confinement, but they might instead face problems like starvation. Tuna fish can be preyed on by whales and shark. There is like some, I think, research that suggests that they have higher rates of parasitism in the wild as well. So we might like naively say, well, we think it's like slightly better uh, to be a wild tuna fish than to be a farm tuna fish. And so then the next question you'd want to ask is, well, if we want to think about replacing the consumption of wild caught tuna fish with alternative products, we need to think how bad is the death of a tuna fish in the wild versus being uh, wild caught. And so tuna fish tend to be caught through uh, trawl nets, which can be quite stressful. And then they face the same sorts of like slaughter provisions as farm tuna. So there's, there's no humane provisions. It's often something like, 
yeah, blunt force trauma or asphyxiation. It's pretty unclear, though, how you would decide whether that was better or worse than dying because you've been hunted or eaten, especially because the way fish are hunted and eaten is like very different to what we'd expect uh, from terrestrial animals. And then the next thing you'd want to think about is, well, okay, let's say we think it's like plausibly better that we don't consume fish. Actually, no, let's say it's plausibly better that we do consume them. What would that mean? Well, if we say stopped farming fish and only uh, ate wild caught fish, then we might expect to see the population of uh, tuna drop. And tuna fish are also predators. So that might mean that the population of their prey ends up um, ballooning. But actually, most fish are predators. And so what we might see is that the prey of the prey end up becoming depleted. And it's not really a simple case to say that, well, if we like deplete this population, that that might be a good thing because they tend to have really negative lives. Because often if you deplete one population, what you end up seeing is that like another population um, comes and takes its place. So there are like all of these different effects and there are like all of these different stages at which we just are very uncertain about what it means for the tuna fish's prey population to increase. Um, what does that mean for the quality of their lives? What is their, what are their experiences like? And what does it mean for the prey's prey to then be depleted? What would take its place? It's really, really difficult to like understand, first of all, how this like traffic cascade works and then to make an assessment of how good or bad it is at various levels. I think like on this, Brian Tomasic actually has a really interesting article. I think it's called Traffic Cascades Caused by Fishing. And that like goes into much more detail. And I thought that was really, really interesting read. So I guess that's just like one way to illustrate how difficult it is to get a sense of what the like ecosystem effects are. Yeah, I will stick up a link to, to, to that essay for people who want to learn more about uh, fish trophic levels. There's this famous interview, or at least famous to me, an uh, interview between Tyler Cohen and, and Peter Singer. Where I think uh, Tyler points out, so if you're vegetarian and you're eating uh, and you're like choosing not to eat animals that are made in factory farms, that kind of makes sense because if you eat more of them, then, then you get more of them created. But he's like, uh, Singer, what... What about like catching catching these wild caught fish? And he says, "Oh, I'd be wrong because you're because you're like killing them and eating them." And he's like, "But they're gonna be like they're gonna die of starvation or like be preyed upon in the sea anyway. So their death is like you're not changing the number of like animals that that die there." And then I think it seems like Singer hadn't hadn't really thought about this. This this was this was a little while ago, so uh, ten years ago before this issue had been had been raised more. And he's like, "Ah, oh, but then you like end up with less of them." And he was like, "But are their lives good? Like, are you saying that it's like?" the tuna are having a good time in the sea and that having fewer tuna would be a bad thing. It's like, uh, but like, what's the evidence base for that? Like, why do we think that it's like bad for there to be more tuna? If you think it's like the life of the tuna is good, so we shouldn't catch them, then surely catching the tuna such that like the tuna doesn't hunt all of these other animals. And then so you end up with more fish because that would be good then, right? Because you're like getting rid of the predator. So it's like the same kind of thing of like, at every point you kind of don't know what the sign of like, is being caught by a human worse than like the death that a fish will otherwise suffer? There's like so many different interactions here and so many different things. We don't even know whether it's positive or negative that figuring out what actions to take is, is, is incredibly hard. All of that said, I think I'm somewhat less sympathetic to, to this argument than some other people are. One thing is I think it rests on, or for many people in their mind, it rests on this uh, misunderstanding of uh, what nature is like, where they imagine that there's some like long-standing stable state where the number of animals or the ratios between all these different species is fixed. And whenever you get a perturbation to that, that's undesirable. Uh, and, and like, hopefully at some point it will rest be restored back to its like natural good equilibrium. Because if you actually like study biological systems, if you actually study some ecosystem, you see that the like numbers of different species and like the ratios between them are just flying around like cha chaotically all the time. Like one species will take over and then like 
or will it increase in number and then it'll be like hunted uh, like away. And um, this like changes year to year, like month to month. So it's not as if there's like some stable thing that's like great that we like, oh, we like can't, can't destroy this wonderful situation that we know is ideal. Uh, it's really just that it's like flying around all the time. And like, yes, humans like mess with it. But so do lots of other species like, uh, you know, increase in number and then like catch other species. I guess I'm like less nervous about interference than perhaps other people are because I just view it as like what humans are just like one among like many other things that are changing uh, the number of different animals at any point in time. And there's no particular reason to think that our interventions are going to be like especially harmful. Yeah, I don't think I'm very sympathetic to the idea that we can't intervene because anything we do will throw the ecosystem out of balance. I think that like if you conceive of the problem as, you know, there's this huge problem, um, it's too difficult to do anything because anything we try and implement on a really large scale has these like unforeseen effects, then I can understand why inertia sets in. I think I'm more sympathetic to the idea that Whilst we're very uncertain, we should be cautious and we should be reluctant to like engage in an action that could have potentially negative effects. And so what I sort of prefer is rather than seeing the potential solutions to the problem as this binary of like, well, we solve a large part of the problem or we solve none of it, we could just break it down into subsets and try and just focus more on incremental change. And hopefully while we implement incremental change and learn more about the problem, we will discover solutions that weren't immediately obvious to us in the beginning. I guess not not to pick on Peter Singer, but uh, another objection that he made, I guess, when when someone raised the, the possibility of trying to help white animals at a talk uh, is, uh, I, guess, I guess, just to quoting him. Yeah. For practical purposes, uh, I'm fairly sure, uh, judging from humanity's past record of attempts to mold nature to its own aims, that if we tried to interfere, uh, it would be more likely to increase the uh, net amount of animal suffering if we interfered with wildlife uh, than, than to decrease it. Lions play a role in the ecology of their habitat, and, and we can't be sure what the long-term consequences would be if we were to prevent them from killing gazelles. Uh, so in practice, I would definitely say that uh, wildlife should, should be left alone. Yeah, what do you think of that argument, that kind of what we've done so far has been bad, so we should be like very cautious about interfering going forward? I'm sympathetic to the idea that we should be cautious, and I totally endorse the idea of not taking actions while we have massive uncertainties. I do think that I... I'm not convinced that we will definitely increase suffering as opposed to reducing it if we interfere, primarily because we've never actually tried to help wild animals before. Most of the ways in which we've interfered in the wild have been for our own gain, and we haven't really paid attention to the effects that they have on wild animals. So, I mean, I'm also uncertain that we could potentially do something positive, but I I guess I'm not convinced that we should be fairly certain that we won't be able to have a positive effect for animals. And uh, another one that I hear pretty often is that um, uh, like while, while humans, uh, we kind of have a moral duty to, to help animals that are like pets or farm animals that we're interacting with. In as much as like wild animals are just not interacting with people at all, they're just interacting with one another. We just don't really have any uh, moral duties to, to creatures that are just like outside of our entire sphere of interaction. Well, I guess it's a more philosophical than practical objection. But yeah, well, what, what do you think of that one? There are like two ways I could answer this. And I intend my answer to stay as far away as possible from ethical theory because I'm just the furthest person from being a philosopher. So I guess the the first response would be that I just disagree that we don't have a duty to animals that are outside of our sphere of interaction. I think what's at play here is like an act emission bias and it doesn't seem to me to be compelling that just because we aren't the direct cause of a negative experience, we don't have a duty or we shouldn't be interested in trying to alleviate that negative experience. That's probably the first response. The second response is even if we assume that that claim is correct, 
I think that anywhere you try to draw the line, when you try and define like which animals are within our sphere of interaction and which ones aren't, I think would be pretty arbitrary. So often people uh, think that because we don't interact with wild animals or if they live in, you know, untouched land, then we haven't affected their lives. But that's actually not true at all. Any sort of like urbanization or large scale agriculture necessarily has an effect on reducing, changing, removing the habitats of animals who used to live there. Those animals are then forced to either relocate or they end up potentially as a result of losing their habitats, their populations decrease. When animals have to relocate, that changes the balance of that ecosystem. And so even if you think about environments that have been totally untouched, anything that we do in adjacent regions will have an effect on that. If we build a dam, um, if we change the direction of a river, that changes where animals can access water and where plants have access to water, which changes the way that ecosystem then functions. I, I don't think that there is a strong case that there are any animals that are outside of our sphere of interaction. I think we just have varying degrees of interaction with them, but that essentially we interact with all animals in some way. And so we would have a duty to help them. If you're more of a moral pluralist, you might think, well, there's like many different reasons where we perhaps have moral reasons for action and say some of them might be because we have like relationships with people uh, or like, you know, we're engaged in some kind of cooperation with them that like creates its own kind of ethical considerations. But I imagine that uh, most people think that like all our sequel kind of suffering is bad. So even if there's like weaker reasons to care about white animals, still like even if there's like yeah a creature that we haven't had anything to do with that's like suffering horribly, then like we still have like some reason, even if not quite as strong a reason to, to try to help them out. Of course, I guess like to me, it just seems like equally strong. I don't <laughs> tend to think that we have like equal equal duties to um, white animals as, as, as farm animals. Um, I guess I don't know many listeners feel that way, but, but perhaps not, not all of them. Yeah, another, another objection that I uh, chased up from uh, Jennifer Everett, which I think uh, might occur to people in, in one form or another, is the idea that kind of uh, consequentialists or utilitarians might uh, actually want to endorse kind of evolutionary selection, survival of the fittest, because like even though it's quite unpleasant uh, to go through, it's um, the only way that you can get rid of uh, kind of uh, deleterious genetic traits. So if we tried to like stop survival of the fittest, then this would basically result in like just gradual deterioration of like the capabilities of the organisms that that were left remaining because you'd be uh, you know, allowing kind of genetic diseases to propagate and, and and spread because the carriers of those weren't weren't being uh, removed from the population. Sounds sounds a little bit brutal, uh, but I guess like probably a lot of people think something like that about like about the wilderness. Uh, do, do, do you have any reaction to that? Uh, yeah, I think that's a really interesting objection. I haven't actually read the paper that it comes from, so I basically my response will be purely in the context of that of that quote. I think that what's interesting is the distinction between a scenario where the survival of the fittest or evolutionary selection allows for a better scenario than one without evolutionary selection and one where we claim that like the current scenario is the best possible one. So I agree that in some sense allowing genetic or allowing animals to only propagate if they are the strongest and the fittest probably does lead to healthier populations. But I don't necessarily think that like species health is the same as individual well-being. And I think that's a that's a pretty risky link to draw because then you essentially end up conflating the individual experiences with a species which 
as a category doesn't have the capacity to, to have like positive or negative experiences. So that's like the, the first concern. And then the second concern is that like, just because evolutionary selection is better than a scenario without one, it doesn't seem to me as though we can't still improve on it. Um, and so I'm not really sure why our attempts to try and improve situation, improve like the situation of, of wild animals couldn't actually result in an outcome that's even better than the, the status quo. A middle ground might be that you could say sterilize like the, the, the weak organisms or something. So they, so they don't propagate their genes, but they don't have to like die in some horrible way. Or ideally we could just prevent a lot of uh, animals that are unlikely to survive mm -hmm. from being born at all. I mean, I think one of the, the cruelest uh, like effects of the current system or the, the status quo is that a lot of animals are born, but then die very shortly afterwards, or they might live slightly longer, but then they don't get to reproduce because they are, they're weaker or they have you know, genetic defects. I mean, I think it would be much kinder if there were a scenario in which they never had to exist at all. Uh, so you're saying uh, we could just like have some kind of birth control where they could produce a more reasonable number and, and then uh, the survival rate will go up. So you don't have like nearly, you don't have the 99.9% .9 infant mortality rate, uh, but you still get like plenty of selection potentially at later stages. It's just like involves like less mass death. Yeah, exactly. Another more like simple objection that I get uh, a lot from people who I like don't directly work with or like aren't part of effective altruism is just, why would you want to inter interfere with nature? Like nature is natural. That means it's good. Like changing it, that's bad. I guess maybe I'm like straw manning that position, but <laughs> do you have any comment on that kind of thing? It's like, I guess this whole like naturalness, uh, like sphere of, uh, of concerns. I mean, I guess I would be curious how they define nature because it doesn't seem to me as though there's a really well-defined concept of what is natural. It's what already, are, it's, it's what's there, Persis. It's like, yeah, but, why would you ever want to change anything <laughs> that has been around for a long time? Well, I would expect that people who truly buy into a belief system that uh, places like some kind of intrinsic value on nature would have to be willing to give up their homes and stop living in cities and stop, you know, Recording making podcasts. use of, Unnatural. exactly, <laughs> stop making use of technology because none of these are, are natural. It's very difficult to give a very good response to an argument that is like not extremely well defined. It's very difficult for me to get a sense of what people actually mean when they say nature is good and changing it is bad because we make changes to nature all the time that have been to our benefit and we will keep doing so. As you can probably tell, I'm not, not a huge fan of this objection. I suppose like, yeah, you can cash it out into like more concrete things like, oh, well, uh, this is a thing that has persisted for a long time and like has its own order. And so interfering with it, like might be expected to be bad. But I think like many people, they, they're not even thinking through to like what to some kind of more consequentialist or practical argument that's spitting out of this. It's just like, this is how things have been for millions or billions of years. And so like humans have no place like changing this thing. But it, it just seems like absolutely fundamentally flawed like uh, reasoning. There's like no reason to think that something just because it's been around a long time is good. Uh, it could also be terrible. And like humans have done all sorts of things to like change the way that humans used to live because we thought it was bad. It's like, you know, we used to have slavery, used to like be like starved to death all the time. Uh, we like changed that because it was bad. I guess this one actually often often shows up on the left, the like naturalness of, uh, of, of, uh, of nature thing. But I don't think they'll accept a similar argument about, you know, like uh, different sexual practices or like unnatural, like, you know, people, I guess uh, 
uh, people in the uh, conservatives are more likely to say, oh, homosexuality is bad because it's unnatural. I think they're factually wrong about that. But even if they were factually right that it was unnatural, I think uh, we wouldn't accept that that's like a good reason to to discourage it or, or ban it. Yeah, you have to have, like, have some greater objection to something other than that. It hasn't been what has typically happened before. It's just not a good argument. Yeah, I agree. I would be surprised if someone who believed that, you know, what is natural is good, held that as their sole belief, um, as opposed to it potentially being one belief amongst a mixture of other values that they constantly, and they constantly have to make trade-offs between them. And I think if you're going to be engaging in that trade-off, then what they're essentially doing is saying, well, I would like to change nature when it benefits me, but I don't think I'm going to change nature when there is no benefit or when it has like zero effect on, on my life. And I think that's like where the main flaw comes in, that they're just disregarding the experiences of wild animals. Another flavor of this is like, oh, it's natural and it's beautiful or some kind of aesthetic thing about like how I guess humans have evolved to like find nature really aesthetically pleasing because that was the environment or at least like some, some forms of nature, ones in which like humans are able to survive very well, we find uh, beautiful. I, I guess I often find that people con uh, confuse like aesthetics and, and ethics. Uh, and this is like another case where it's like something can be beautiful to humans. That's a fact about like what humans like looking at. They're not really a fact about like what is good in itself. Or uh, yeah, you could have like a wilderness that has a lot of suffering and it's like quite barbaric. And the fact that it's like looks like a nice painting is kind of kind of irrelevant morally or like only a tiny factor in the scheme of things. Yeah, I, would, I guess for people who strongly want to preserve nature because it's aesthetically pleasing to them. Again, I guess there's like a trade-off that I would be asking them to make. I mean, to what extent does the aesthetic pleasure you get from nature outweigh the horrible suffering experiences that animals have? And well, I mean, I'm sure some people would say that the aesthetic pleasure they get out of it does outweigh the suffering experiences, but I guess I don't really have, you know, a huge amount of like credence in, in an argument like that. Now I guess I want to move on to uh, how this plays with uh, with, with long-termism. And I guess uh, the reasons that, that I don't personally prioritize um, wild animal suffering uh, that much. So I guess, yeah, what, what are the arguments for prioritizing wild animal suffering from, from a long-termist perspective? Is, is, is there much of a case for that, that it, that it improves like the, the very long-term future of kind of humanity and all of our descendants and, and the universe as a whole? Yeah, so I'm much less familiar, I would say, with like long-termist perspective than maybe a lot of like EAs or maybe even a lot of listeners. I It's like not really an area I've spent a huge amount of time working on. But I would say, so the first thing I'd say is that it, and it's probably pretty obvious, is that if you do prioritize long-term outcomes, then I don't actually think it makes sense to focus on wild animal welfare because what you'd want to focus on are the most important leverage points and wild animal welfare is just not one of those. So, so I don't think, you know, I don't want to like make a case that people who really care about the, the value of the long-term future should be working on this because I don't think that's true. I do think that there is a point at which it makes sense for people who are who take a long-termist perspective to sort of include wild animal welfare within the remit of like the broad actions that we could potentially take. But I also think that that probably largely depends on what you sort of see as being the most urgent risks that we need to attend to. Um, so I guess like a very simplified example is that like, if you have really high probability of short, you know, AI timelines, then it probably makes sense for you to focus on putting all of your resources into technical AI safety work. And it makes less sense to do something like broadly useful, like focus on, you know, improving democratic process. But if you have much longer, like a higher probability in much longer timelines, then it's probably a little bit harder to, you know, it's a lot harder to predict that technical work will have long run impact. And so it might make more sense to just focus a lot more on, on like the broad action 
actions you can do to generally improve to improve things at a societal level. I think in the latter scenario is where it might be interesting to include wild animal welfare, primarily because part of the value of a long-term future is one that is as inclusive as possible and factors in the welfare of like all beings that could potentially be moral patients. And a scenario in which wild animal welfare is not included could be one in which we end up with these like catastrophic oversight. So there are probably two goals, I would say, to including wild animal welfare or to, I guess, prioritizing wild animal welfare as like a concern for people who care about the long term. The first is that like, if we include that like non-human beings have the capacity to suffer, no matter what form it takes, then we would hope that the value of the long-term future like implicitly includes the value of all of these lives. And so actually, if we improved the state of wild animals now, and as a consequence improved, or, or at least like factored in the value of any non-human life that could potentially exist in the future, then we would actually be increasing the total value of the long-term future. But even if we don't include non-human life in the value of the long-term future, then I'd guess that just like instilling norms of inclusivity and compassion would be pretty robustly positive things that we could do. And I mean, that's pretty speculative. And I don't actually know that promoting wild animal welfare or working on it now would actually result in an outcome like that. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a, like a fairly plausible case. And even in that scenario, I would imagine that like the primary benefit from a long-termist perspective is for humans. But what would I, what I would want for wild animal welfare is that we actually address it now. Okay. So to like try to summarize that, I guess you're saying if you think like this, like, you know, a revolutionary AI is going to come about really soon and you're going to get like big changes in the world uh, very quickly, then it wouldn't make so much sense to, to focus on wild animal welfare because you want to focus on these like pivot points that are like going to happen soon enough that we should just be thinking about those. On the other hand, if you think that there is nothing like that, then focusing on uh, wild animal welfare might be uh, valuable because you like get to change people's values and like make sure that the, the concerns of like wild animals and like other organisms in the future that are like wild animals uh, would be taken uh, into consideration in like the very long-term future. You're like potentially changing the trajectory of like human values or the kind of concerns that we would implement in, in this kind of like long-term, like uh, much more advanced future. Yeah, I think that's basically right. And I guess the reason to like not focus on it would be that while it's like a very important issue because there's like so many wild animals that uh, exist at any one point in time it's not quite that urgent it's like it's a problem that is just going to continue like in as much as like humanity just continues on its like in its current situation it's not it's not a problem that's going away anytime soon and it's not a problem where uh, if we don't solve it now then we like never get to solve it or anything like that if anything it's like getting easier to solve in future potentially uh, so it's one that we can just like punt down to future generations or like yeah delay fixing whereas potentially like other things like the risk of nuclear war if we like don't fix it now then like potentially we'll never get the chance to do it because we'll be like we'll, we'll, be, we'll be totally screwed by it now uh, yeah, I think it's probably right that wild animal warfare doesn't have the same sort of urgency as like existential risk does. But I'm not, I guess I have some concerns about the idea that we could just uh, leave it to future generations to work on. Because I think the expectation that we have that they will do it depends on how likely we think it is that they will think wild animals are morally relevant in the future. And it seems like pretty plausible to me that there are many scenarios in which We've overlooked things in the past and that if we're not working on promoting the idea that we should be considering, we should be taking like a really inclusive approach, then maybe they will overlook it in the future, even if it does become easier and more tractable to work on. 
I think there's probably like a medium ground here where what the like field of wild animal welfare looks like is, you know, in, in 10 years, it's something like advocates are lobbying key decision makers to make decisions that consider the effects that they would have on wild animals, as opposed to it being the sort of field where there's like a group of people who are working on solutions and then trying to implement them. That would actually be my ideal uh, outcome, especially if we expect things to become more tractable down the line. But that does still require that we start working on the problem now because there are a lot of really important questions we need to answer to be able to make that case convincing. So in the future, we'll be able potentially to like to solve this problem. But the question is like, will we? And I guess we want to set ourselves up so that we'll like choose to do that, even though it might be like quite inconvenient or quite costly or difficult or controversial or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And I guess there's also this concern that we might get like, I guess over the last few centuries, um, our values have shifted quite a lot uh, from like kind of pre-industrial society to where we are now. But I guess it's conceivable that they could become like more stable and like uh, harder to harder to shift in future. I think probably think that won't happen. But it's like it is possible that like human values will become a lot more like static in future, in which case we like would need to rush to like improve them quickly before they start getting like too stuck where they are. So how much, I guess, yeah, people who are working on this problem, how much do they see it as mostly a vehicle for like advocacy about uh, like not being complacent about like you know uh, how how good the wilderness is and not uh, not being indifferent to to the welfare of wild animals uh, rather than like actually trying to do anything to concretely help them uh, right now you know for for its own sake. I'm not sure that I have a good sense of you know if there's like a a fair representation of what all the people who are working on this now are hoping. I mean, I would say that probably most of the people who focus on it have a near-termist worldview and are probably really interested in actually alleviating the like negative experiences or improving the welfare of wild animals. And that the potential benefits that it has for the long-term future are sort of like the added bonus. Whereas I guess if you take a long-term perspective, then helping animals now is the added bonus and the value of the long-term future is the, the goal. Is the, is the real meat of the yeah. Yeah, meat of, yeah. well, no, uh, not meat and potatoes, but at least potatoes. Yeah. Do you think that this is like uh, among the better kind of vehicles for, for moral advocacy? So I guess if you're like just trying to think about, well, we want to improve the future by like making uh, humans care about the right things, then uh, yeah, does wild animal suffering like stand out on like across like the whole smorgasbord of possible topics that you could be raising with people and trying to trying to shift their attitudes on? I'm actually not sure. So there are two ways to think about the near term work that we do as like having an effect on, on um, encouraging a more positive shift of human values. There's work where you're just engaging in like deliberate advocacy. You're just trying to encourage people to become more inclusive or to expand their sphere of concern. And then there's work that is just purely focused on trying to solve a problem. And as a result of that work, we start seeing traction and we start seeing like change. And then when something becomes mainstream, people sort of shift their values in response to that. I don't really know which of the two is more effective. I would say that the work that we're doing in wild animal warfare falls into the latter. Like the focus is not so much on telling people to start caring about wild animals, the focus is on trying to figure out what we can do about it and then basically trying to make that change happen. And hopefully as we start seeing that change happen, people get on board. I've noticed this phenomenon where 
if people think that nothing can be done about something and they think it wouldn't be valuable to do it, or they kind of confuse like what's practical with what like what would be desirable. And so it might be that like the best way to like get people to actually worry about wild animals uh, is to show them concrete ways that they could, that we could help and show them that it's like not impossible to fix. And then they would be like motivated to actually think about it and like care about it, about it as a moral issue. Because I guess, I'm not sure whether this is a justification, but an explanation might be that like, do you really want to think that something horrible is like really important and a moral responsibility if in fact you can do nothing? Then that's just kind of depressing and pointless. But then like once you like activate, once you like indicate, oh no, there are solutions to this, then people like actually need to like think about it on a more concrete level. Yeah. And one really surprising benefit, I would say, to like wild animal welfare is that there's no really demanding or challenging ask that we have of people. Anything that we might think is like a viable or feasible change that we want to make will require asking, you know, so for example, if we're talking about like making fish slaughter more humane, that requires like going to companies and encouraging them to like introduce new provisions. If we're trying to like prevent the increase of insect farming, then it's not like a decision that's made on an individual level where basically, again, either liaising with industry or with government or with like directly the people directly working on that. So it's not it's not the sort of cause area that is hard for people to get on board because for every individual person, it doesn't actually cost them right. very much to just they agree. They don't even have to stop eating meat. Like, it's, yeah, it's not, exactly. You're not asking for individual. Like, you like need a systemic or like governmental or like technological fix rather than like individual action. Yeah. And I would I would expect that people would find it easier to say like, yes, I support making this change that is better for these wild animals, even if it might like incrementally increase the cost of something. So, you know, introducing more humane pesticides might incrementally increase the cost of vegetables that they have to buy. But that process is like pretty well hidden and it's not immediately obvious. And so it's quite easy for people to say, yeah, I really care about rabbits in agriculture and I don't want them to have to die in these horrible ways. It's only going to cost them a few cents and like some different poison. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have any sense of, has there ever been any public opinion polling on, on wild animals? Like what do people think now? And I guess how far away are they from thinking the things that we'd ideally like them to think? I don't know if there's been large scale public polling. I know there there was like, I think animal charity evaluators did a few small scale surveys, but I, I mean, I'm not sure if they were just asking, you know, what is your impression of like wild animal suffering? I mean, it's also kind of important how you communicate it. Like I could imagine that people are really on board with the idea of helping an animal that's been hit by a car but not on board with like, you know, eliminating lions. Like that's just not an idea that I would want to get on board with. So I guess it really depends on like how you tend to communicate the concept of wild animal welfare and what you're plausibly asking people to get on board with. I imagine this is like out of all the issues that we talk about, one of the things that people thought about the very least, it's like not something that most people have like really given much consideration to at all, in which case like the initial framing or like the, or the like nature of the question that you ask will more or less determine kind of kind of the answer that you get. And then they might just like not really have like stable opinions at all. I suppose I am like interested to yeah, get, get a sense of like, yeah, how do people respond to different questions? Because um, you, you might have heard uh, on the, one of the episodes with uh, Spencer Greenberg, uh, he had all this uh, opinion polling that he'd done on Mechanical Turk about uh, what do people think about uh, farmed animal welfare. And I guess the, the biggest update for me was that I had thought that many people thought that farmed animals weren't conscious. And so the justification for their like horrible treatment was that they, they can't feel anything, so it's fine. But it seemed like that was actually an extremely minority view. Like really, we're talking like less than 5% of people thought that 
pigs couldn't feel pleasure or pain. Actually, people thought that their lives were good. It's that they, uh, it's more that they were ignorant of the of the farming conditions and that they um, believed that like pigs weren't moral patients. And that's kind of a big that might shift your messaging quite a bit just to get some basic sense of like what do people actually think. I suppose you might think, well, maybe the poll was asking leading questions. I think Spencer was pretty responsible there. The questions were fairly neutral and like didn't didn't lead people really uh, that much one way or the other. But it might be. I, I guess it's conceivable that we could do some polling on like wild animal stuff and find that well, if you just like ask the question the right way, people are like, oh yeah, it is bad that like all of these animals are like dying at birth yeah i would definitely say that the way you communicate um probably plays a really big role in terms of how people respond because there are ways of communicating uh wild animal welfare that are really intuitive and then there are ways that are like really counterintuitive and i think that's something that the wild animal initiative is hoping to work on so they did some early and very small work on communication strategies and might be looking further into like what are the most effective ways that we can have conversations on this which I would like love to see uh, the output of. I'm really excited to learn more about that. I guess this this raises the issue of it potentially being like quite a risky thing to be working on because if you're among the first people like framing this whole issue and, and pushing it out there, then uh, talking about it the wrong way could be, could, be, could be really harmful and like fixing people's minds, uh, like yeah, a negative attitude about it. Is that something that people worry about a lot and perhaps like is one of the reasons that people are more just trying to do like basic research rather than go out and do you know any kind of big, big campaigns? I think that's a pretty important consideration. You're right. The way people communicate it could be like a sticking point that ends up being kind of detrimental in the future. But I would say maybe that the larger consideration for why maybe it's not the right time to do really broad or mainstream public outreach is that we're just not really at a point where we, I guess, have a good sense of what the problem is, what the extent of the problem is. And it's kind of risky to also communicate a problem without, especially one that is like relies very heavily on scientific data to back it up without having the support of academics behind you. And so I'm pretty wary of just going out and saying, you know, to the public, here is something we should care about. You should be outraged that there is all of this suffering happening in the wild and we need to do something about it. If we don't also have ecologists and biologists um, and psychologists behind us saying that, yeah, there is like really good evidence that this is actually what's happening and that we should be able to do something about it. Do you have any um, advice for listeners who I guess might end up talking about this issue about like how they can uh, frame it in such a way that it's like that, that it's not off-putting to, to people who they might be speaking with? Well, I guess I can give advice based on the sort of approaches that I've tried to use. So the general approach I try and take is that I change the way I frame the issue depending on the audience that I'm talking to and on what on what I expect them to care about the most. So for example, if I'm like talking to EAs, then I might focus a lot more on the scale of the problem. Whereas if I'm talking to maybe animal advocates, I might focus a lot more on the experiences that animals have. I mean, those are like probably a bit cliched. <laughs> But, you know, the idea being that if you can get a sense of uh, what people care about, you can try and find like intersection points with their existing values and then, for lack of a better word, leverage those to to communicate wild animal welfare in a way that isn't going to be very off-putting to them. But unfortunately, I wouldn't really say I have very general principles. I think there might be some content out there on this I would probably check either the animal ethics website or the wild animal initiative website I think they might have both done some work on this but I there are like no clear general principles that come to mind I tend to sort of take a case-by-case approach 
So, so to me, it's it's really obvious that uh, long termists, at least at least me and the, and the one people that I know personally, are concerned about you know the welfare of like farm animals, including what and you know wild animals as well, and I guess like other beings that might um, exist in future that that are, that are moral patients and, and have experiences as well. Do you think that we should make that clearer to to um, you know the, the rest of the world? Uh, this maybe something that we don't talk about that much, and uh, I guess perhaps like animal activists like don't understand where we're coming from. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, it seems, so I guess based on my understanding anyway, is that it seems as though a long-termist perspective, you know, it does implicitly include non-humans in the worldview. I think that like, if I maybe put myself in the shoes of someone who uh, works primarily on long-termist issues, then maybe there's a concern there that if you try and like more widely emphasize that you're talking about non-humans, that it becomes much less certain what you mean. Um, so are you talking about, you know, biological animals that exist now? Are you talking about animals that will exist, you know, if we colonize space, are you talking about animals that will exist on different planets? Are you talking about extraterrestrial biological life? Are you talking about like artificial life? I mean, it's pretty unclear. It's very poorly defined, like what, uh, non-human means when you're talking about the long-term future and so I can imagine there's like a tension there between wanting to have like a very explicit and clearly defined concept of what you're working towards that as a result means you try and avoid talking about things that you're like less certain about versus trying to be more explicitly uh, inclusive in the way we communicate it and I guess that's maybe like a strategic call for people who are, you know, spend a lot of their time thinking about the best ways to communicate like long-termist issues. Usually, uh, if you're trying to get people to uh, come around to, to a, a position that's not super common, you want to kind of do it one at a time, uh, I think usually rather than like wrap it all up together. So if you're trying to like get people to worry about how the world's going to be in thousands of years time, then usually just like focus on that and don't add in like another odd thing. It's like talking about animals in thousands of years time. This is like just piling one thing onto another. And likewise, if you're trying to get people to worry about uh, farm animal welfare, you probably don't open with like farm animals in thousands of years time. <laughs> you just like, yeah, do one and then, and then do the other. But I guess that could lead to like misunderstanding about what people actually like. Someone who's talking about farm animals doesn't mean that they don't care about the future. It's just that that's what they're talking about right now. That's because like, it's like easy to make one point at a time. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I mean, often when I talk about wild animal welfare uh, work, I do talk about it within the like, within like a near termist perspective, because that's what it's most relevant to right now. So in terms of us needing to do this moral advocacy uh, now, rather than just like leaving it for the future, I guess so, so one reason would be that, yeah, we like won't get the chance to change, uh, change values in future. I suppose another uh, possible uh, reason might be you think, well, we have this the seed of people who are worried about this issue now, but uh, in, but in, it's possible that that could just get extinguished, and then like there won't be anyone around who worries about this in future, and so uh, this like set of ideas could could die out and, and and never really take off. I guess I feel a bit skeptical of this whole line of argument, maybe because it feels like uh, we were doing like something for one reason, and now we're kind of justifying it on a different grounds. that seems like a bit more spurious. Maybe I'm also just like temperamentally, I'm more more inclined to think that we'll get like moral convergence on ideas that like will actually be more like in the long term we'll get to the right answer and that it's fairly unlikely that we're going to get to some situation where people just or where we just like stop deliberating on what's morally good and so uh you know fingers crossed like if this is correct then like people will eventually realize it and, and we don't like have to rush to get the right answer on this one or like accepted by most people right away yeah and i guess the, the idea that concern for uh, white animal welfare could just like die out and not really be revived maybe just because it seems like such an intuitive idea to me it's like very hard for me to imagine that that, that happening because people who are more like moral non-realists who like uh, 
uh, don't think that there's like any any real truth to the matter here. Uh, perhaps people who think that like ideas and ideology kind of just like evolve in a more random way, uh, such that they're just like flipping around chaotically and there's not really any kind of convergent direction to them. I guess for those people, it might make more sense to, to focus on this issue and make sure that it, that it persists and gets like gets taken up by a lot of people sooner because uh, it's just a greater chance that we could like fly off in some completely different moral direction and end up ne- never returning to worrying about this as a, as a, as a species. Yeah, these are like really interesting uh, ideas. And I, I, I mean, I think they sound plausible, but it's really hard to to know it's really really difficult to get a better sense of like what is actually happening here i imagine you're gonna gonna have a uh, similar kind of agnosticism about this one but uh what do you think of the odds that kind of we we take wild animals or kind of their equivalent to space hypothetically if we were like if we were to go out to space i know this is something that some wild animal folks worry about it's like it's not just about wild animals and similar creatures on earth but rather like they could end up being like an awful lot more wilderness uh, in in the future than than there is today so I guess like the the first way I would start is that I don't actually know what humans will or won't do um, <laughs> if we get to a point where we can where we colonize space. I mean there are, there are like a whole series of potential paths that could be plausible. Maybe if we colonize space, we bring wildlife with us either because we've terraformed new planets and so we want to recreate you know the environment that is familiar to us on on earth on different planets or, or uh, perhaps we need them as part of the terraforming process yeah know. exactly yeah exactly to make environments more habitable for humans maybe if we colonize space we engage in something like directed panspermia where we basically just release or seed biological life on some planets and let it grow at will and that's obviously a lot riskier because we have no idea what that biological life will grow into and whether that could potentially mean the situation is worse. I mean, it could also mean that maybe things evolve in a better way, but there's like much more uncertainty there. It's also kind of not really clear to me to what extent biological life will play a role in the like long-term future if we end up colonizing space. And so another consideration would be, well, like what would be the goal of bringing wildlife? Um, If they're not necessary for our survival, then is it purely aesthetic or is it that we just think there is some value to spreading more biological life. There's a lot of things that I am pretty uncertain about. So, I, and I also don't really know what the likelihood of any of these events occurring is. But assuming that like future generations do place some sort of high value on biological life, then ideally what I would want is that we've either found some sort of solution to, to or we've like improved wild animal warfare enough that we um, aren't spreading suffering um, on like a catastrophic scale or that we've like found a way to introduce wildlife to new planets that just avoid the problems that they currently face. I'm as usual more inclined to speculate than you. I suppose I'm pretty skeptical that we'll, we'll bring uh, wild animals to to other planets or yeah, take, take that out of space. It's just like, so, okay, so we're going to like try to terraform planets. One thing is that I think we can do that more easily just with plants and bacteria. Like we, I don't think that we really need like animals, uh, maybe even like insects as part of this process because I just don't really see how they how they fit into that. And they're just like creating a bunch of extra problems. And I guess also like, in as much as we like go beyond Mars or go beyond the solar system, I think it's just so much more likely that we'll do that in the form of like solar panels and electricity and like computer chips than in the form of like biological humans. It's just going to, it is just going to be so hard for I think like biological life of the kind that we have here on earth to uh, survive like the trip out to like other solar systems and then like colonize these planets from like just just the the engineering challenges there are so massive 
that I think we're going to have to like change the, the the form that like that life here exists in before we can possibly go out and like spread at any like significant rate out out to other other parts of the universe. Perhaps I'm being like a bit, or perhaps I'm in the sense being like too pessimistic about what's about what's possible. But it also just seems like those other approaches would be would be quite a bit more efficient and so more likely to to actually take off. Yeah, I mean, you probably know more about this than I do. Um, That's not I guess clear. I just find it. <laughs> I'm not really sure how we can predict what will and won't be feasible in the future and what will and won't be necessary. But I think it does make sense that um, if we are traveling beyond the solar system, then it's less likely we would do that with biological life. I guess uh, to push even further into into weird territory, some people who worry about uh, white animals think that this is kind of uh, a good uh, like prototype for being worried about uh, suffering that you might get as like a part of artificial intelligence or as part of kind of digital systems where you might have yeah subroutines i guess is the term that people use or like you know parts of computer programs that are like sentient uh, but like not able to like control their lives you know perhaps in like some kind of analogous way to to white animals and that we might uh kind of neglect the welfare of those like computer systems in the same way that we kind of do uh, wild animals today how good do you think is that analogy and like <laughs> how much should that play play a, a role in our like in, in in the case in favor of uh, you know working on wild animals you know hoping those will like flow through to concern about like other agents in future i think there's a pretty interesting line of thought that goes something like if we keep constantly trying to expand the type Um, of beings that we consider moral patients, then it makes us less likely to overlook uh, something like sentient subroutines. And so that would obviously be a hugely positive thing if it were the case that subroutines were sentient. There's another line of thought that is contrary to that, which is something like, well, if we created something artificial we would just do so in a way that meant it didn't have the capacity like there was there was no possibility of it being sentient because there would be no need or that there would be I don't know there's some way in which we would be able to like factor that out I don't really know how plausible either of these are I mean I think there's like probably good arguments on both sides but it's just really speculative and I'm not really sure that I have like a huge amount that I could sort of add to the argument I think it's interesting and I think I definitely think there is like some value to the idea that we should constantly stay alert to the possibility that we're overlooking some beings from our like moral circle but I'm not really sure it doesn't really seem obvious to me that focusing on wild animal welfare is the most promising way to do that. Or that it, there's necessarily a link between like wild animal welfare and whatever the next version of potentially sentient being that we're unfamiliar with is. Yeah, I think that's kind of my take as well. I, I, I agree that there's like some effect here, but it just, it seems... Oh, and I think like trying to get people to worry about like possible suffering, uh, like that's in non-biological forms, like like on computers in in future, uh, is is a good goal. Uh, it just does just seem like go, take doing it via the wild animal route is like bringing with it a whole lot of like challenges that you might be able to avoid just by talking about that directly. Because uh, I actually I think I remember seeing some opinion polling. I'll try to chase it up, suggesting that uh, many people did believe that it was uh, possible that artificial intelligence in in future could have pleasure in pain, and so that there might not even be like that much skepticism about that. It might be almost easier to, to get people to worry about like AI as a moral agent than to get them to worry about white animals and certainly to like try to get them to worry about AI via getting them to worry about white animals. I, I tend to I tend to favor directness in in plans in general. Yeah, I guess there's maybe some value to the argument that people tend to 
change their values incrementally. And so it might be quite a large step to take them from the small number of animals that are currently within our like sphere of concern to uh, intelligent or sentient subroutines. And maybe it's easier to sort of introduce gradual changes to people, um, to introduce gradual moral patience so that when they do encounter something as strange as artificial sentience, they're less likely to object to it or they're less likely to find it really absurd. Do you think that long-termists like me uh, kind of overrate or underrate or perhaps appropriately rate the uh, work to address uh, wild animal welfare? If we're talking about trying to promote the value of the long-term future, then I think long-term SDAs have probably accurately rated the like importance of wild animal welfare. I mean, it's kind of hard to get a sense of how important people think it is because when long-termists talk about what's important, they tend to just talk about, well, what can we do if we're focused on promoting or if we're focused on having impact um, from a long-termist perspective. I guess one thing that would be interesting if there was more discussion of where and if or if at all there is intersection between the things that might be really promising from a near-term perspective and that could potentially also be promising from a long-term perspective. And I think these are probably likely to be much less important, but I would be interested in seeing if there are ways that we can leverage things that are already happening or that I guess cause areas that people think could be quite robustly positive because we can do something about them now, whether we can leverage that to have, like add value to the long-term future as well. Let's move on to talking about uh, kind of different approaches that, that people might take to, to solving the problem and kind of how tractable they are and uh, maybe, maybe looking at some more of the details. I guess in terms of direct work, yeah, what, what interventions other than the ones you've already mentioned kind of do we have uh, some, some confidence uh, actually are like, do you have a positive impact on white animal suffering uh, right now? Yeah, so unfortunately, I, I don't actually think there are, like, I guess other than the category of interventions that I mentioned, so ones that don't really have an effect on populations and just try and improve things that we're already doing, I wouldn't say that we're confident that there is anything beyond that that could have a positive impact on wild animal welfare. I think there are probably lots of potentially promising ideas. So, for example, Ozzy Brennan, who worked on the Wild Animal Suffering Research Project, did a really comprehensive literature review of contraceptive techniques that we could use on overabundant species. So not just on species that tend to be culled because they interfere with agriculture, but also just generally overabundant species. And sort of came out after doing the literature review with a sense that it's likely to be a net positive intervention. But I would say that that's like just the beginning of a much more detailed investigation into what it would mean to try and implement something like immunocontraceptives for overabundant species, particularly if we're not constraining the region. Why is the, why is the region important? So the way we currently cull animals tends to be um, we focus on where they are most overabundant and minimize the population in that particular environment largely because they have the most adverse effects in that environment. If we're interested in just addressing overabundance, then we would be addressing it on like a much larger scale. It would still be localized in the sense that overabundance tends to, 
you know, species will tend to congregate within one environment, but you'd be applying it across a lot of different regions at the same time, maybe, or consecutively. And that sort of increases the risk that we see some effects that were unintended or unexpected. How would you actually, uh, like at an affordable price, uh, do contraception on kind of animals at 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 a mass scale? I don't actually know. There isn't actually any contraception that exists currently that you could do on a mass scale at a low price. A lot of the contraceptive techniques that have been trialed on deer or wild horses or even on uh, rat populations, they tend to be species specific. And so that increases the cost if you try and apply it more widely. I think there's some research that suggests that immunocontraceptives could work across species because they target the immune system as opposed to targeting some specific like reproductive element. I guess as opposed to targeting the specific reproduction system of a particular species. So if you engage in like mass contraception on some animal there was a lot of, I guess people might be concerned that well just other animals would fill the same niche. Uh, I guess yeah what are the, like the ways that this might backfire and, and why do you think Aussie came out thinking that it was like probably positive overall? So the ways it might backfire could be that when we reduce one population, what we end up seeing is just another animal comes and fills up that space. Another reason it might backfire is that it's not really obvious to us that we can appropriately manage populations when we try and reduce them. So, And this could be when we try and cull them as well. Uh, so like governments try and set quotas, uh, but these quotas aren't really based on very accurate and a very accurate understanding of what the like ecosystem or environmental carrying capacity is. So it's very hard to, to strike the right balance. Um, and with something like immunocontraceptives, it might be even harder because you could be introducing it either animal by animal, or you could be trying to have it just transfer from animals. I'm not really sure if the second way would be feasible, but it sounds like it would be a much more cost-effective approach. The goal of using the contraceptives is to reduce the population numbers so they'll have fewer children. And that means that there'll be, say, more food to go around for, for each member of this species, or I guess like more nice places to hide for like some species to, to reduce their stress by reducing the population density. The idea behind it is that overabundant species exist because something's gone wrong with the balance of the ecosystem. Either predators have been removed or animals have been introduced into the environment and they've been able to take it over or for some reason, what used to be a controlling factor no longer exists. So animals tend to become overabundant and then they strain, they have a strain both on the environment, they start to face an increase in resource competition, and it also has a negative effect on the other animals that share that environment. So it might be harder for them to access uh, resources as well. There might be an increase in aggression because there's just a much denser population of animals altogether. We might also see like a, it becomes easier for diseases to spread, um, again, just because there's like a much denser population of animals. Um, so there are a lot of ways in which overabundance can be negative beyond just the fact that there is like an increase in, or there's like a shortage of, of access to resources. Being, being Australian, I can't get, like, the, the, the thing that I always imagine in this case is kangaroos, which is like a, commonly, there seems to be like overpopulation of kangaroos and I'm, I'm not sure why. I'm not, I'm not even sure whether it really is overpopulation or whether they're just inconvenient to, to certain people. Uh, but I guess there they just tend to go out and shoot them en masse, right, to lower the population numbers. And I suppose this is an alternative way of doing that that seems uh, less cruel and I guess like might have a more lasting effect on the population by just like reducing the number of children that, that they can have the next generation. Yeah, it would definitely be a much more humane approach because, well, the current problem with culling is that it's not a sustainable way to reduce populations. You have to do it every few seasons to keep populations low. And especially when you have uh, overabundance of a native species like kangaroos in Australia, 
it's very hard to control because part of the reason that they've become overabundant is that in Australia in particular, predators have been largely eliminated in the environments that they tend to live in. And we've reduced their natural habitat quite a lot. I mean, technically they're overabundant because they have a smaller habitat, not because they're reproducing at a rate beyond what the environment could have contained. Yeah. Is there any role for gene drive technology here? I'm just kind of kind of spitballing. I mean, I think there's a lot of like promising options that are coming out of like CRISPR technology or the sorts of stuff we're seeing from gene drives. I think it's kind of hard to see how we could like feasibly use gene drives at the moment. One of the main concerns is that you wouldn't want to release something in an environment without being able to contain it that is also irreversible. And that's because if we don't know exactly what will happen, we can't really take back uh, the decision we've made if it ends up meaning that things get worse. So I'm, I'm pretty wary. Um, I think there's a lot of promise and I'd be really interested to see more work being done, but I'd be pretty wary of placing like too much emphasis on the benefit of gene drives at the moment. And as much as we're worried about diseases like causing ongoing suffering, what, what about kind of vaccination programs or is, is there any kind of medical treatment you can provide to... Uh, to make animals' welfare like better while, while keeping them without like necessarily changing the numbers so much? I think this is something that animal ethics has looked into. I haven't actually looked into this a huge amount. It wasn't the focus of my research, and Aussie also didn't get a chance to look into it. It could be interesting to see if there are ways that we could vaccinate animals that doesn't necessarily shift their populations. We did it in Europe with rabies, I mean, and that was like largely so that rabies transmission to humans would decrease. But I would have expected that it would have had an effect on the population of foxes in Europe as well. And I'm not really sure what the outcome of that was. So it would be interesting to maybe look at, you know, the 10, 20 year effects of um, eliminating or vaccinating foxes, seeing whether or not their populations fluctuated or whether they would manage to remain stable as a result of like this program that we ran. I guess it seems like uh, maybe it's naive to think that you can uh, get rid of diseases without changing population numbers because kind of any disease is going to like reduce the fitness of the those individuals to some degree. So it changes the population a bit. But maybe you could like find diseases that are particularly unpleasant to have that like don't have a huge effect on fitness. I suppose, yeah, I guess I'm not sure what those would look like, but, the, but, the, but there must be some that are like, yeah, more suffering heavy than they are like population changing. Yeah, there might be diseases that don't necessarily shorten or drastically shorten lifespans. They just create chronic pain. I guess the contrary argument is that if a disease weakens an animal, it makes it easier prey. And so even though an animal might not die as a result of a disease, um, the disease contributed to them being predated. And that is like the way the population was controlled. So if you, if you eliminate diseases that don't necessarily kill animals, but weaken them, then you might still be inadvertently increasing populations because it then becomes much harder for predators. Another objection would be that uh, if there's like a parasite that is like causing pain to the animal, but it doesn't actually affect their reproductive fitness, then eventually they'll just like learn not to feel any pain in response because that's just a distraction that's like not actually tracking their like reproductive fitness, which is like ultimately what the whole like kind of sensory system is designed to, to pick up. Yeah. What about uh, humane insecticides? That's, that's another one that I've heard mentioned which i guess also like falls within like you know uh stop humans doing additional damage rather than trying to like interfere with ecosystems per se yeah i think that probably falls into the make more humane pesticides rodenticides category it's a bit harder with insecticides because uh we don't really have a good sense of what the physiological effects of insecticides uh like what they are for insects so we have a sense of what they end up doing to 
insects, but we don't really know, I guess we don't really know how that affects the insects. So for example, there are insecticides that basically coat an insect and insects have, this is again going to be a very layman's description, but they basically breathe through their skin. And so if you coat the um, layer, if you like cover an insect skin with this layer of like poison, we would assume that they asphyxiate. But it's not really obvious if they asphyxiate very quickly, if when we think and if when we see that an animal has stopped, like an insect has stopped moving, is it dead? Is it just unable to move and dying of starvation? Is it conscious in the sense of like being awake or not? It's really, really hard to get a sense of what is actually happening uh, to an insect. And so ideally what we would want is an insecticide that kills rapidly. But it's not really clear how you would do that. I mean, one one question is: Is it does anything like that already exist? And the second one is: If not, can we do that? I suppose if you could find some chemical that like shuts down the nervous system or something like that, like uh, as quickly as possible. Assuming insects are conscious, that, that that's much much better than having them starve to death really really gradually. Yeah, that would be ideal. But again, it's like not really clear how you would. Yeah, how do you find like a the dioxin for insects? Or, yeah. yeah, exactly. But yeah, that would be ideal if we could find something like that. I wonder if people who invent insecticides, I would think that it's a pretty big business and that they would like study exactly the effect that it, that it has on them. I mean, I suppose they're not thinking about it from a welfare point of view. They probably uh, couldn't care less mm-hmm. about that. But you'd think they would, you'd think they'd want to know the pathway by which it's killing them quite intimately so that they can come up with other variants of the same thing to like to find other products. The same way there's like, you know, we make one medicine, then we look for like variants on it and we kind of want to understand how it works so we can... Yeah, understand the disease better. Well, I think there is an understanding of how it works in the sense that they understand how it immobilizes an insect and then the insect dies. But there's not an understanding of like what is internally happening to the insect. How does it feel? Yeah. yeah. Or even just like what what functions are happening inside way. the insect as a result of this uh, poison or bait that they've eaten. And that is probably like much less important to people who are interested in uh, pest management because for them it's just what is the most cost-effective way of eliminating as many animals as possible or eliminating as many insects as possible. So yeah, which of all of the things that we could do to help white animals today do you, do you think we might actually want to start start doing? I mean, I guess I go back to sort of the examples that I gave at the beginning when you asked, like, what are the things that we materially could do now? I think it's a smart starting point because we're unlikely to get a lot of objection. They're pretty robustly positive and it doesn't really seem too difficult to try and come up with ways to solve a lot of these problems. I mean, I I don't know how we would create uh, humane slaughter methods for wild caught fish, but there's a pretty clear path we can follow. And same for, you know, if we follow trends of insect farming and it looks like it's growing and becoming cost competitive, well, there's like historical advocacy that we can rely on to help us like prevent this from becoming a much larger problem. So I think with like things that humans are already doing, the reason I like them is because they're easier to accomplish. They're clearly positive. You're more likely to be able to get support for them. And they also, I guess, give the movement in general a bit more cachet. They sort of like ground it in things that don't seem very strange or weird, but things that seem quite sensible that we should all be like striving towards. Well, one angle on this is uh, what things can we do now that like are robustly helpful to wild animals? The other angle is like, what's kind of the first thing you want to do from like a publicity stunt point of view or from a like opening up the public to 
So perhaps like humane insecticides uh, doesn't look so good because it's about insects, which is like a bridge too far, perhaps for most people. But this thing about like, yeah, catching fish and do- killing them humanely maybe is like, you know, a better starting point. And then you kind of move on to the thing beyond that once that's got general recognition and so on. And I guess some- something around, yeah, like doing contraception of kangaroos rather than culling them uh, might be a fairly good one here because people, like kangaroos are very sympathetic animals. People tend to not don't like the fact that they're getting culled. It's quite, quite controversial. If you're like, well... They're wild animals, but like even so, we like shouldn't kill them. We should like use contraception because that's like nicer. Maybe that's like a way of opening people up to this whole like sphere of concern gradually. Yeah, I think that's like roughly the point. And we could get to something like humane insecticides by first starting with the ways that we kill foxes and rabbits and other animals that tend to create homes in in crop agriculture. If we start with those, we can gradually progress to insects, and it becomes less and less weird to be talking about humane insecticides. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on from kind of uh, direct work, I guess most of what we want to be doing at this point is actually uh, research and outreach. So let's talk about those in turn. Yeah, what is kind of the, the key research that needs to be done and who should plausibly be doing it? Yeah, there's heaps of really important uh, research that needs to be done. I mean, basically what we want to do is reduce the uncertainty we have as much as possible. So we want to understand what experiences do animals have, how prevalent are the ones that we think we should be most concerned about how subjectively bad are they and hopefully we could try and do that by building some sort of objective measures based on how animals respond to various stimuli we also of course want to understand the flow through effects of any decisions that we make in ecosystems and in general i think we just need to gather like a huge amount more data there's just very little large scale data on wild animals available And so who should be doing it? I mean, ideally, we would have biologists and ecologists doing a lot of the field research. And what I would also like to see is this, you know, interdisciplinary mix of people with a background in philosophy or people who are very interested in the welfare effects addressing what we think the impact of a lot of this like empirical data that's coming at us is for animals. Yeah. How how can that be made made to happen? Uh, How how do you get kind of academics to take an interest in this? Are are there any steps? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. So I think we're still like in early days of a lot of the academic outreach work that we're doing. I don't know if there are sort of definitive, actually, I'm sure there are definitive answers for how do disciplines develop? I'm sure there is like a path that an academic could tell you, well, you publish a special edition in a journal and then you organize a symposium and then you have someone start working on it in a department and they build the team. There's probably like this path, but I'm not an academic. And so I don't know the the details of that path. I guess what I can do is sort of comment on what we tried to do or what I tried to do when I was working on wild animal welfare. So I sort of tried two different paths. I tried to target, well, first I tried to reach out to really established academics who had labs and who were doing research in areas like population ecology, neurobiology, microbiology. Yeah, basically all the subsets of ecology, biology, some psychology as well, and basically reach out to them and talk to them about the research that they were doing. And usually it was research that I thought was adjacent, but like empirically useful. But I didn't really, I I guess I didn't really require that they were aligned to our values. I just wanted to get a sense of what they were doing and how it could be useful and then try and figure out how receptive they might be to working on issues that were like slightly more useful to us. And although I had a lot of really interesting conversations and I learned a lot, I found that people who are much more established in their careers are much less flexible. It's much more difficult to try and get them to either 
shift or introduce a new element into their research because they have pretty well-defined path. The other uh, path I very briefly worked on, but that the Wild Animal Initiative is now focusing on, is trying to work more closely with early career researchers. And so the idea here is that there are lots of students, people who are doing masters or PhDs or who are starting their postdocs or who have just begun their academic careers, who haven't sort of set themselves up, they're um, maybe more receptive to the ideas. It would be easier for us to expect them to be value aligned if we wanted to, say, fund them to do the research that we were interested in. And then have them actually do the work. So they could do the basic research. They could also do a lot of the legwork for us by building the networks within academia, by attending conferences, by speaking at conferences, by organizing the symposiums. So basically finding these early career researchers and having them use their connections to establish it from the inside, I guess. So that's an I that's a path that I think could be potentially really promising, but it's early days yet, so we'll see. I think Open Phil has actually done done some research into yeah, how do you get academic fields started? I'm going to, I'm going to horribly, I'm going to butcher this, but I think like one of the lessons kind of was that it's very hard to go from having like, oh, we'll get one person to work on it and then now recruit a second person. You kind of need a whole lot of stuff to happen at once because it's like, it's just so hard for one person to stake out and go out into a new area. They tend to just, if they're not within like some existing discipline, then they just tend to have like no support and get kind of booted out. So you need to probably bring like a bunch of funding to the table to encourage like many people to start working on something somewhat simultaneously. Uh, Do you think that uh, we want to get academics to like care about white animal suffering per se, or is it more useful to just try to co-opt people who are working in kind of adjacent areas for other reasons and then get them to try to answer questions incidentally? I'm actually kind of torn about this and I've had a lot of discussions with other people who I've worked with specifically about this question. I think it depends on what you are hoping to get out of the relationship you have with that academic. So I would want an academic that I hope will be able to lead a team in the future or one day form an institute. Basically, an academic that I expect to be a leader to be extremely value aligned. Um, and so if there were young academics that I thought were really promising or, you know, early career researchers that seemed really aligned, I'd basically be really interested in just investing in their like, you know, 20 year career or 30 year career. But on the other hand, there are a lot of very talented scientists already who are doing research that is really important and who have great networks. They're established at really good universities. They have almost everything they need. They just... And, they, and they're really open to doing a research project if they get funding for it, then I'm also kind of open to just taking advantage of those opportunities um, because it's much more cost-effective to just fund someone for two years who already has access to a lab, who only basically needs funding for their field work or for their salary as opposed to funding them to establish everything from scratch. So wherever we can find those opportunities, I think it would make sense to take advantage of them, but I don't think it would make sense to just rely on them. Are there groups that should be doing this research other, other than academics? I mean, there's like just random nonprofits where you like hire people to do specific research, but it might be a little bit challenging to get traction on that kind of without an existing institution and without like a training, uh, like, a, you know, an established training process to, to get people to be able to do this kind of what's effectively ecology. Yeah, I think you could get independent researchers to do a lot of the theoretical side of things. You could get them to do a lot of the literature reviews, a lot of the synthesis and analysis of data. But if we're talking about wanting to gather new information, then I don't see how we could do that without the resources of something like a university. 
Are there any like agricultural groups that are like non? Yeah, I guess I'm kind of again just like speculating here, or like uh, spitballing like ideas outside of academia. I guess it's like farming groups or something. Like that. I mean, there's probably organisations like the CSIRO out in other countries um, that tend to have like huge amounts of government funding. Uh, but that's Australia's but that's, like commercial uh, government like research agency. Yeah, exactly, and it's very difficult to have any say in what their agenda is. And I imagine it would just be extremely difficult to sort of get any leverage out of something like that. But I'm not really sure if there are smaller research groups that are doing independent field-based work. I'm not really sure of that. Are there any kind of technologies that could eventually enable us to, to like really successfully reduce wild animal um, suffering in a, in, a, in a very big way? And kind of how, how fanciful are they? So I'm not really sure if this counts as a long-term technology but there are things that already exist that I think we could be utilizing uh, to a greater extent than we are. For example, I think we could be using autonomous drones more effectively to gather information. So they, they would be much more cost effective than sending people out into the field and much more useful at gathering more detailed uh, information across a wider scale. I mean, across like a larger region. I also think we could be maybe taking advantage of like satellite technology more to get a better sense to build or map out climate models or ecosystem models to try and sort of build historical maps and maybe forecast future trends. I think this stuff does happen, particularly in like population ecology work. We do see a lot of this already, but it could be used to a greater extent. And one reason that maybe it hasn't so far is that it's very expensive and no one has really, no one has really come with the funding to enable existing researchers to do that unless there's like a very strong incentive. So unless there's like a reason that the government is really interested in this or there's an industry or a corporation that's really interested in this research it's pretty hard to just like for researchers to access that kind of technology do you want to speculate about something you know f- further in the future i guess you know in a thousand years time could we have lots of drones everywhere like teaching insects to have small litters and i don't know <laughs> providing just the right amount of co- like monitoring the numbers of each different species and providing just the right amount of contraception such that they have uh, an, an easy life I do think that if we are going to do anything on a larger scale, it probably will be autonomous. Like it's not going to be people going out to all of these like remote places around the world. I guess I don't really have a good sense of what exactly that would look like. I don't know if it would be we would just have robots maybe monitoring ecosystems and making sure that they are always in balance even after we make the changes that we think are like beneficial for wild animals or if it would be a change that's like much weirder and much more unexpected than that I mean I think Brian and David Pierce have both like speculated uh, much more ambitiously than I'm probably willing to (laughs) and so I guess I would probably recommend reading some of the stuff they've written on this. They have some really interesting ideas. But yeah, I think I'm maybe not someone who spends a huge amount of time thinking about what it would actually look like. I'm more just focused on what can we do now? And then hopefully we'll get a better sense in like, you know, two or three years, what it might look like in like 20 years. When it comes to like big mammals, I guess what you'd, you want like robots to be going out and I guess like providing lots of food and water and shelter to all, all of the animals, but then make also con- using contraception to make sure that they don't 
increase their numbers like in response to having all of these new resources which is basically like what we have for humans it's like we're really rich um because we've got like all of these machines that provide like abundant wealth for us but then we have to make sure that we don't like produce way too many people such that like all of those all of those gains are then like whittled away just by like massive population expansion so we could just try to do that something like that for animals but it's like obviously much harder to do it <laughs> for animals that don't understand what's going on whereas like humans kind of do i think it would probably maybe be easier for animals because we well i anyway am a bit more comfortable with taking a paternalistic approach to animal welfare than i would be to you know human reproductive rights <laughs> So the the challenge will be in how effectively robots can monitor environments and make the changes as needed. And and to get to that point we just need to have much more information than we have now. But I I mean I think it's like plausible that one day we will be able to have super detailed accurate information that would allow robots to make those kind of judgments or at least to like assess the information and decide what needs to be done. I mean, it's like a crazy technology to envisage, but like computers are like crazy by the standards of someone in 1700. So it's like, is it like a greater step forward than, than yeah, 1700 to today? Yeah, being able to do that. I mean, I'm not quite sure what the solution looks like for insects though. I guess, that, yeah, that's uh, like in as much as just their entire reproductive method is to have very large numbers of children. It's like a very large numbers of offspring. It's very hard to see. Yeah, what's the intervention that like that changes that? What do you rebreed every insect like species to like get them to have fewer? Ch- yeah, I'm not, I, I I I don't don't have, don't have any great ideas there. Yeah, I don't either. I guess the one main concern would be if I mean if you want to sort of play around with insect populations, then we need to be able to make sure that the role that insects play in ecosystems is accounted for. It's especially tricky, Um, yeah. Yeah. And so it's like much harder to get a sense of like what it would even look like to help insects. Yeah. Yeah. All right. uh, Moving on from research to um, outreach. Uh, how how important do you think outreach is in, in kind of this, this whole package of uh, work, work to address white animal welfare? And um, do you think it might be premature to, to doing much much outreach at the moment? Uh, yeah, I think we maybe talked about this a little. I, I think outreach is really important, but I think it's not super important to do a huge amount of broad public outreach. It makes a lot more sense to focus more on encouraging academic support or encouraging support amongst communities where we expect to have or we expect to find people who could and are interested in doing this work. I don't think wild animal warfare is one of those cause areas that needs a huge amount of public support, at least not at the moment. And maybe not even at a, at the point where we're contemplating policy. It seems more likely to me that it's the sort of issue that is kind of obscure to most people. The solutions might seem kind of obscure and far removed. And so maybe it's the sort of issue where we just have like lobby groups that liaise directly with like policymakers. And that's actually the best form of outreach that we do. I don't really know when we will get to that point, but I think for now it probably makes sense to try and limit the outreach we do to the communities that we expect to be the most useful. Yeah. Which, which communities are kind of the, the most plausible allies here? seems like some people are, in, are enthusiastic in the animal welfare and animal rights communities, although like certainly not everyone. And philosophers, I guess, seem to be the other group that are that are very interested in, in, in this topic or unusually interested. Yeah, do you think those those two are kind of good groups to expand into? And, and are there any others? Yeah, I mean, the EA community obviously has been a huge supporter of wild animal welfare work. I do think that animal the animal advocacy community is the promising like next ally. I think it's a bit more of a challenge there because there's a lot of, 
I wouldn't want it to seem as though we are, well, I actually wouldn't want to detract people from farm animal work if that's what they're focusing on. So right now, what I would ask of like people in animal advocacy communities is to just be aware and maybe sort of encourage them to think more about the issue, but maybe not so much uh, encourage them to shift their priorities if they're already working on farmed animal uh, welfare. I think like the other communities are probably also ones that I have already touched on, so primarily academic communities at the moment. I imagine that in future doing outreach within the political sphere will be really useful and that potentially there could be allies at like think tanks or research institutes. But for now, I think we're trying to keep it as limited as possible, at least until we have built a larger group of people working on it, like we've built a larger community and we have like better better answers to some of the more like core questions. <laughs> I know, um, uh, yeah, the wild animal welfare agenda sometimes gets a bit of antipathy from, I guess, well, uh, um, animal liberation people, I guess, like probably some animal welfare people as well. I guess like environmentalists uh, also sometimes like uh, find this a bit, a bit confronting. Yeah. Have, have you encountered any, any of that yourself? And uh, do, you have, do you have any thoughts on, on how, how to address it? I've actually been really lucky in that most of the conversations I've had with people who were initially or even after the conversation skeptical of wild animal warfare work, they've been very polite and um, positive experiences. I haven't really encountered a lot of people who have seriously engaged and then sort of come away. Well, I mean, they've seriously engaged and then come away unconvinced, but there hasn't been uh, any like animosity as a result. I guess if I were giving like very general advice, I would encourage people to not spend too much time trying to convince people who do have kind of- Philosophical objections. Yeah. I mean, to the extent that people have predetermined values that they're unwilling to change, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to to try and change them. I think there are probably more effective uses of time. Just like go find someone else who's more sympathetic to begin with. Yeah, exactly. And there are probably a lot of people who are actually very undecided. And so it might make more sense to actually focus on like the majority of people that don't have very strong opinions than to focus on the minority that vehemently disagree with you. Yeah, I think that's uh, generically good advice, is it? It can be a real trap to constantly argue with people who strongly disagree with you. I mean, the thing is, they'll come to you. They'll like, they'll be definitely be available for conversation potentially. But it makes a lot more sense to try to find to identify people who are undecided or like leaning in in your direction or already already sympathetic but don't yet know it. I guess other people have reported that they sometimes get antipathy from these groups. Uh, I guess like you're just a more like sober, reasonable person who doesn't like to to mouth off a lot. Uh, do, do you think that is uh, one of the reasons why you haven't had like? Uh, like many difficulties with people in other communities or people with different values, uh, like being hostile to, to, to the work that you do. And, and maybe that's like an optimistic thing. They're like, well, actually, if you just like are a serious person who isn't just there to like have a provocative philosophical argument, then uh, people are more likely to take you seriously and, and, and not just uh, not just get annoyed. I mean, it could mostly just be that I don't expose myself to a huge amount <laughs> of people. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and so maybe it's just that there are less people who've come into contact with uh, me than, than with others. Well, we're changing um, that here. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm expecting the hate mail to come flowing in. <laughs> I I don't know. Uh, I mean, I can imagine that a lot of the animosity that people might have comes from feeling very put off by like a counterintuitive case for, you know, disregarding the integrity of nature and or proposing that maybe the best way to help some animals is actually to reduce their populations or limit the number of an, like animals that come into existence. I can imagine how these would like rile people who are very passionate about like ensuring animals, 
you know, live their full natural lives in the way that, I don't know, nature intended. I mean, my approach, if I was speaking to someone like this, would be to try and identify exactly what, like, what their biggest concern is and try and change the way I communicate wild animal welfare to them in like a way that I guess makes sense from their perspective or at least communicate it in a language that they're really familiar with. I don't think that that's necessarily like a very efficient thing to do, but if your biggest concern is that a lot of people respond very negatively to an argument that you're making or a claim that you're making, then I would probably say that like the easiest change you could make is just to change the way you're communicating it. All right. So we've talked briefly about like direct work and uh, kind of a research agenda and, and some outreach. I guess people's biggest complaint with this whole area is that it is that it's not, not tractable to work on. So I suppose all things considered, like how tractable do you think wild animal welfare is as, is as, a, as a problem area? I think the answer to like, should we intervene is like pretty clearly yes. I don't really find it compelling that we only have a duty to animals whose suffering we don't directly cause. And I don't really find it compelling that we should preserve, you know, nature untouched. Um, I mean, I think both of these have pretty serious flaws. So I think we definitely should be intervening. And I think it's quite clear that there is like no clear cut solution to like the entirety of the problem or even to like a very large portion of the problem. But I think that there are a lot of incremental improvements that we can make. And I don't necessarily see that as like a cop out. There are a lot of cause areas where we start with incremental improvements and then see what develops as a result. And so I think if we're thinking, or if we're not conceiving of tractability as like, how can I solve the largest amount of this problem, but what can I actually do to address it? And what I can do to address it is like quite small, but still important. Then I do actually think there are really promising cost-effective things that we can do. Um, There actually are some like tractable things that we can do to help improve wild animal welfare. And while we're doing that, We can also be spending time acquiring more information, which will help us figure out the answer to the bigger question, you know, what are these like feasible, long run, net positive things we can do on a really large scale. In this last little bit, it'd be good to talk to, I guess, people in the audience who've listened to this and are potentially interested in actually trying trying to solve the problem. First up, uh, would you recommend working on this problem? I mean, you've like kind of slightly transitioned out of it into something that's adjacent. Uh, yeah. Do you think that wide animal warfare is, is a good thing for like more people to, going, to be going into? And, and, and if not, like what, what else would you recommend they do? I think I would recommend the problem, but it depends a lot on like, so the strength of my recommendation depends a lot on the type of person that, you know, I would be speaking to. And it also depends on like what they're most motivated to work on and where their skills happen to be a really good fit. So, I mean, I wouldn't recommend working on wild animal welfare if your primary motivation is like long-term considerations. I wouldn't recommend working on wild animal welfare if you're already working on farmed animal welfare and your skills are really well suited to that. But I would recommend working on this problem if you're someone who has really strong research skills, you have the right background in life sciences. And also you're motivated by problem solving and by really difficult problems that don't have a clear cut solution. And also if you're the sort of person who's just really comfortable working with uncertainty. So this is like, it's very early days and the sorts of people who work on this now can really shape the movement. But as a result of it being unshaped, there's a lot of groundwork that needs to be done. But there are a lot of people I was, I'm one of them who just really love jumping into something that is like really unshaped and like trying to give it some form. So I would probably recommend it to people with those like particular attributes. 
Yeah. Are there any other kind of attributes that import are important given the importance of like not messing up, kind of shaping this like set of concerns in kind of its early days when when like it could go could spin off in the wrong direction? Yeah, I'd say it's probably important to well to have like quite strong communication skills or to at least be um, savvy in the way you communicate. I think it would be really important for people who work on this to be the sorts of people who are willing to engage in a lot of conversations with people and figure out how to have disagreements in a really respectful and positive way, which is not that easy. Uh, and outside of the EA community is not a norm um, that a lot of community, a lot of other communities have developed. Not so always a norm in the EA community <laughs> either, but <laughs> well, my at least it's an ideal. <laughs> Uh, sure. Okay. Maybe yeah. it's not even an ideal in other communities, <laughs> which would make it like much more of a challenge, especially given how strange the, the cause areas. So, uh, as you said earlier, it seems like there's something like under, under 20 full-time people, uh, working on this and under a million dollars going into it uh, per year. So I guess, uh, in terms of, uh, my question is kind of what projects are there and what are they working on and kind of what people are in the space. And it's like, I guess it sounds like we might be able to almost give a completely comprehensive global index of this. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you want to try to do that? Uh, sure. So, I mean, I know of three organizations at most that are working on this. Wild Animal Initiative does this exclusively. Animal Ethics does this with a majority of their time. And Rethink Priorities does a little bit of research. They spend like a portion of their time on this. That's basically the extent of the not-profit organizations that I know working on it. As far as I know, there are no, you know, academics that are specifically focused on this particular issue. So I haven't really included them. But what I'm hoping is that through like academic outreach efforts, we will soon be able to point to at least individuals, if not teams that are really, really interested in this. That could be like a really good reference point for students in particular. Yeah. Do you mind like going through those organizations kind of one by one and just, just describing them in a, in, in a couple of sentences? Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm like most familiar with our Wild Animal Initiative and I'm a bit worried that I'll misrepresent the other two. <laughs> um, so Wild Animal Initiative is the organization that I helped uh, found and they do a couple of different things. So they work on the foundational like prioritization research that basically all of the research that I've been saying we really need. Yeah. They do some work on communication strategies. They also do some programmatic work trying to assess the cost effectiveness of some near-term interventions. So they are working on this like super small scale test of indoor cat adv advocacy and another one which is trying to figure out how feasible it might be to advocate for more humane versions of insecticides that currently exist. Those are the two programs they're running and I'm sure there's something else that they do. Oh, academic outreach, of course. They spend a large portion of their time basically trying to build relationships with early career researchers. Animal ethics does a lot of outreach, particularly also to universities. They have a pretty clear focus on establishing welfare biology as a discipline. And they're taking like a slightly different approach to the approach that Wild Animal Initiative is taking. I am probably not going to explain this correctly, but my understanding is that they want to basically get a sense of how receptive scientists already are to wild animal welfare ideas, and then basically trying to use the information that they gather to figure out how to best create the discipline. I think they're trying less of a, I guess, like piecemeal approach and more, more of that like definitive way to establish a discipline. So what are the steps that we need to take to build this up from scratch? And then they just want to take all of those formal steps and try and establish the discipline. And so I think that's really interesting. It's like a totally different path. Um, and I'm really excited to see how that 
uh, develops. And rethink priorities, again, I'm sorry if I've totally mischaracterized their work. So my understanding is that they do a lot of primarily cost prioritization research, but in a lot of different, uh, well, because it's cost prioritization research, they work across a lot of different cause areas and they spend part of their time answering, I guess, like key foundational questions for wild animal welfare advocates. Yeah, I think uh, Rethink Priorities is pretty new. I think it kind of only only like appeared as kind of its own project within the last year. But they've hired a bunch of researchers to look at a whole whole range of different questions of which I guess, yeah, are things that can be done to help wild animals is, is one of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they have an agenda on their website, which explains in more detail what they're working on. I guess it sounds like um, there might be opportunities to help with this problem, not just by uh, you know going on working directly, but also by funding. To what extent is the is the issue kind of funding constrained? And do you, do you have any ideas uh, where it would be best for people to give? So the, yeah, I guess that there's kind of like this, I was going to say there's this chicken and egg problem, but then I thought, no, I don't really want to use like a farmed animal <laughs> Species example. Species metaphors. <laughs> yeah. But I guess that's yeah. the only one I can think of. So there is a bit of a chicken and egg problem in that funding was, uh, you know, up until like at least maybe this year, uh, the main constraint. I would say it probably still is a funding constraint and that these organizations, all three of them could benefit from a lot more funding. Talent constraint, though, has also recently become something that's like since since organizations have brought in a lot more funding, it's now become much more important to try and bring in enough talent. I think I recently or I think through either recent conversations or published posts, both Wild Animal Initiative and Rethink Priorities mentioned that they were more funding constrained than talent constrained. They, they both recently run hiring rounds and found that there were many actually quite qualified people that they couldn't hire. I don't know if that is the case for animal ethics. I wouldn't be surprised if it were. And so I guess, you know, in summation, I'd say they're, they're probably funding and talent constrained, but funding a funding constraint is like a bit of an easier remedy. And I think that with an increase in funding, the teams can do a better job of attracting more people. So I don't think that the talent isn't out there. It's just that uh, maybe people aren't really aware that there are these opportunities available to them. Yeah, some people object to this whole like talent uh, versus like funding a di- dichotomy. And, and there's like some truth to that just in that like y- even if even if your issue is that you can't attract the right people, you can't attract the right job applications, then it's surely at some price, surely if you had some amount of money, then then you could get people in. I think that that's not always true because uh, sometimes people are just like unwilling to work on stuff even for like very large sums, especially if you're like targeting a fairly small number of people who are uh, already have like lots of lots of good job opportunities. But uh, it can be a little bit hard to, there's like no absolutely no no, no fixed line there. It sounded like you're saying that there's like more funding that's become available for white animal work lately. Do you, do you know where that's coming from and, and why things changed? So I guess if we're if I'm comparing it to the state, uh, you know, two or three years ago when there was no funding <laughs> available, a large amount of funding has come from EA funds. And I would also say a large amount of funding has come from the effective animal advocacy community. Those are probably the two main sources of funding. There is probably also a smaller, more diverse set of funding coming from just either interested EAs who don't identify as like people who donate to EA funds or as part of the effective animal advocacy community, or maybe people who are purely interested in animal advocacy, but have like really resonated with this issue. So it sounded like you thought a background in the life sciences was, was kind of the, the ideal one. What, what specifically do you think, do you think people ought to study? Yeah, so I think that 
historically, wild animal welfare advocates have had a pretty strong background in like philosophy or economics. The sorts of subjects or or the sorts of uh, backgrounds I'd be really interested in would be ones like zoology or neurobiology or ethology, evolutionary biology. These are basically all facets of like this, you know, the two main disciplines of biology and ecology, primarily because they will build a really strong understanding of biological organisms and also because you get a really good understanding of ecosystems and those are basically the two areas that are like core to the sort of work that we need to do so any any sort of degree within these disciplines is useful I'm sure there are some that are slightly more useful than others but I don't think the difference is sufficient enough for it to mean that you should like switch from microbiology to zoology I don't think there's like a significant enough benefit to doing that so I would say just generally having a strong background in some of these subjects and also just being really interested in it is really important as well. What are the classic events that kind of people in this community go to where it might be possible to to network really quickly? The main event I would say is the EA Global Conference. That's sort of historically where most of the wild animal welfare community tends to congregate. I'm hoping that Wild Animal Initiative will soon start organizing a wild animal summit which would be great because it would give advocates a more focused space to talk in more detail. So I guess for people who are interested, I recommend that they sign up to the newsletter to stay up to date with their progress. What are kind of natural jobs that someone can do to try to uh, yeah, lead into working in this area if they, if they can't, find a, can't find a position right away? I don't know about specific jobs. I guess I know about the sorts of skills that I imagine would be really useful. So if people can't really get a job straight away at one of these organizations, I'd probably recommend trying to build really strong research skills. And that could be something that people do uh, independently or voluntarily for an organization or trying to get contract work. I would recommend that people also, if they're interested in one day becoming a researcher, making sure they are as familiar as possible with the literature, particularly in the area or the subset that they are most interested in. And stay involved in conversations as much as possible. If people are not really interested in a research role and they're interested more in like an operations or communications role, then I would imagine that the skills that you could get at an organization working in that role would be largely transferable. Um, And so it wouldn't really be necessary that they need to, you know, work at a wild animal welfare, you know, work in that space to build their skills. They could build their skills elsewhere and bring them over. Some people might worry that yeah, working in this area is like a little bit risky because it's like quite a quirky thing that like some people just might not understand. It's like, why do you have on your CV that you worked at like a nonprofit working at white animal welfare? What on earth is that? Yeah. Is that something you've experienced? And do you think it's uh, something that people ought to take into account? I definitely think it's something people should consider. It's not something I experienced, but I think that's because I had quite a lot of work experience prior to joining Wild Animal Warfare and quite a lot of like conventional experience as well. So for me, it was a much less risky decision because if, you know, I ended up wanting to move back into something really conventional and I thought working in Wild Animal Warfare looked a bit strange, I could always downplay it and play up working at the Department of Defense and, you know, some of the other like more mainstream stuff that I've done. I think this is quite a unique career transition from defense to wild animal welfare. <laughs> you're, you're, you're a pioneer in that. <laughs> yeah, I really hopped through quite a different, quite a few different fields. I think if you're new, you're fresh out of uni, then it definitely is worth thinking about 
taking positions that offer you a broad range of skill sets and that you can like leverage into other jobs. And so if you're concerned that you, you know, don't think wild animal offer is where you want to spend your career or you think it might, you know, harm you in future job applications, then I would recommend going into something that's like a bit more conventional and maybe spending some of your volunteer time supporting these organizations and then making that decision when it feels less risky for you. What are some of the top articles or I guess possibly even books that, that people could read to, to learn more about this that, that we can stick up links to for people to people to check out? There's like a lot of the introductory pieces. So Brian Tomasic has the importance of wild animal suffering. Yu Quang Ng has the Towards Welfare Biology, which is very important to read. Animal Ethics has a series of introductory essays that kind of take you through the key considerations in uh, wild animal warfare, which I think are really great, especially if you're really interested in just getting like a, a good foundational understanding. For more complex or more, I guess, unusual content, I would recommend checking out both the animal ethics library. So they've collated all the content that has been published on wild animal welfare, both at peer review journals and through independent research. So I would recommend checking that out. It's also, I think, ordered. And so you can go through, you know, if you're most interested in the philosophical side, you can focus on that. If you're most interested in like the economics perspective, you can focus on that. So that's a really great resource. I also think that there are archives on the Wild Animal Initiative page that link to the research that the Wild Animal Suffering Research Project did uh, and the stuff that um, Utility Farm did as well. That makes me um, wonder, what is the intellectual history of this idea? I guess I know, you know, Tyler Cohen wrote a paper about this in the 90s and Yu Kuang Ung wrote about it like two decades before that. Do you know how far it goes back? Is this something that people have worried about for like a more significant period of time? I actually have no idea how far back it goes. I know when I was trying to get a sense of academics that had written on something relevant to wild animal welfare, there was, there was no trend. There, was, there were a lot of philosophical papers that popped up, but they didn't really seem to come out at the same time. So it didn't seem as though they were in response to each other. I think it might be one of those like philosophical dilemmas maybe that just comes in and out of vogue. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but in terms of like when it sort of became something that people decided was more than just a theoretical question and something we should do something about, that's probably like quite recent. I don't think it has a very long history. I don't know, like the history of philosophy, especially of like different worldviews is, is like so vast that it wouldn't shock me if you found out, oh, it's just like the Incas were very worried about this in the 14th century or some random group like, oh, yeah, really, <laughs> really got into it and then just kind of died out. And there's like some Wikipedia article that's three paragraphs there <laughs> that describes yeah. this. But yeah, it could also just be, I mean, I, I think it is, it's slightly important to know this just in terms of how many independent conceptions have there been of this idea. Because uh, if it's only really come up this this one like with this one thread uh, or this like one like intellectual community that we have right now, then that suggests that it's like not going to reappear necessarily in future. Uh, whereas if like just throughout history, people have been like running into this concern about wild animal welfare and thinking, oh, what can be done? Oh, well, it's actually really hard to fix. Then that suggests that uh, we can like be hopeful that in the future it will come up repeatedly. Yeah, there are probably iterations of the idea that have existed. I mean. Jainism seems to be a fairly old yeah. faith and they mm. promote no harm to wild animals. It's not, uh, well, actually no harm to all animals. It's not the sort of the same, it's not of the same vein as the, yeah. the wild Slightly animal welfare work. I think. 
Yeah, but it's um, it has a similar motivation and a similar sort of, I guess, focus on reducing harm. Yeah, I'll stick up a link to the page about Jainism. I guess obviously Buddhism also has some has some elements of that as well. Yeah, and that is like pretty yeah pretty different conception. I suppose it was like, yeah, it's not part of the same like uh, consequentialist English analytic philosophy track. Yeah, if listeners, if you know more about the history of like how far back does does this line of thinking go, uh, I'd, I'd be very interested to hear where it uh, where it bottoms out. Yeah, how can other people who don't want to spend their whole career on this potentially contribute through like yeah politics or academia or, or journalism? Might you be cautious about people doing this part time because they're just like not going to be able to do quite a professional enough job? I mean, it would be great if there were a way that we could utilize more people who didn't want to make it a focus of their careers. I think at the moment we don't currently have a huge amount of those opportunities. There are, I mean. If people wanted to volunteer their time, there is a lot of work that I imagine the organizations could benefit from. But if you're not really interested in either research or in, you know, academic outreach, for example, I'm not really sure how useful additional work would be at the moment because of the stage that we're at. And I think how, I mean, I think it's kind of responsible to be a bit cautious about how widely we want to, you know, share these ideas before we've sort of locked down some of the like key questions. Yeah, it's it's much less easy to take advantage of like the interests that a lot of people have. I'm hoping that that won't be the case for very long and that as the organizations that currently exist keep growing, there will become more opportunities. And so hopefully, you know, in like six months or a year from now, it will become like much more obvious how organizations can better utilize the time of, of people who are interested in like helping out. To, to finish, what's what's been like some of the like biggest highs and lows of uh, trying to work on, on wild animal welfare while, while you're at it? Uh, I mean, the biggest highs have definitely been how responsive people have been and how, I guess, like the positive reception that I've received from so many people, especially in the EA community. I have often been really anxious about delivering speeches, especially about talking about this issue because it's quite strange. So it's been really, really great how how supportive a lot of people have been. I guess I would say my biggest low is that the very first time I ever spoke, uh, I gave a talk on, on wild animal welfare was at an EAGX conference. And at the very beginning of my talk, I confused R selection and K selection and didn't realize I'd made the mistake. And so I kept making the mistake throughout the whole talk uh, and only realized when an audience member asked a question using the correct terminology and I corrected him incorrectly only to then look down at a colleague who was sitting in the front seat who just looked up at me and shook his head very slowly. (laughs) Um, And I had this moment on stage (laughs) where I sort of felt all the blood rush to my head. (laughs) And I thought, I don't really know how I can come back from this. Well, uh, thanks for coming back and uh, continuing to chip away at this uh, <laughs> quite uh, neglected and uh, interesting problem. I guess today has been uh, Persis. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Persis. Thanks. It's been really fun talking to you. All right. Uh, for an after episode chat, I've got uh, Neil Bowerman, our uh, AI policy specialist. Hey, Rob. And over Skype with a slightly dodgy connection, we've also got our head of advising, uh, Michelle Hutchinson. Hey, Rob. So there's a couple of things that stood out uh, in this episode uh, for you guys. Neil, you thought this episode kind of highlighted the importance of figuring out your values, your like philosophical values, and perhaps also just like your general cause prioritization before you set out on uh, on gaining a bunch of skills that may or may not be transferable. Yeah, so 
in my particular case, um, I was really keen and excited to work on climate change. And uh, I dove into a PhD on climate physics and uh, studied that for several years. And then during uh, my PhD, I met Will McCaskill and uh, Will started getting me to sort of think about my values more seriously and and sort of thinking about like, wh- how much do I prioritize the long-term future? What do I think about uh, non-human animals? And uh, a whole bunch of questions in the space that led me to prioritize uh, effective altruism movement building and um, working on AI policy uh, more highly than working on climate change. And so my PhD didn't end up being that useful. And so I think like wild animal suffering is one of these really fascinating cause areas because it, it brings up all sorts of um, sort of uh, interesting questions, but it also requires a sort of interesting combination of values where you're caring a lot about um, the suffering animals, but you uh, have a, either a bunch of empirical claims about why the future isn't that important to work on or why um, the future, why you don't have a lot of leverage over it. And so there's like a whole bunch of sort of things that you could change your mind about to end up thinking that wild animal suffering wasn't the most important thing to work on. And so I think it's I think it's like a fascinating cause area and one that I think a whole bunch of people should be working on. But I also think that if you think this is your top priority, um, it might be worth uh, sort of thinking through a whole bunch of these other empirical and philosophical claims that you would need to believe to think it's your top choice. I wonder if it seems sensible if you're thinking of going into this area to think through what kinds of things would be useful to study that would also leave other options open. So you mentioned that uh, a lot of the kinds of assumptions you would have to have in order to care about wild animal suffering, like generally uh, caring more about creatures that other people don't would lead you to being long-termist, in which case maybe it would be a good idea to do the kind of biology PhD, which would also allow you to go into biosecurity afterwards if you ended up thinking that that was a more important cause area. Yeah, that sounds like a, a pretty good and pretty interesting strategy to me. Yeah. So I guess what's what's unusual about this this cause here? I suppose one thing is that a lot of people have kind of gone through it and then perhaps like Persis moved on to, moved on to other areas because I suppose it's, it occupies this odd niche of, uh, I guess, a cause area that is uh, quite unusual. So it like tends to attract people who are like very open to like, uh, you know, cause prioritization, very open to potentially working on, on, on unusual things that other people aren't into. Uh, but then perhaps it's like almost not strange enough. <laughs> so like people tend to, to think about white animal suffering or white animal welfare and then move on to like other even like more neglected or potentially like larger scale, larger scale issues. But no one kind of stumbles into working on white animal welfare. So it can perhaps be this like slightly fragile, like intermediate state. Uh, not to say there's like not, not people working on it, on it longer term, but I suppose maybe that does counsel in favor of um, being careful not to yeah, produce like or skills or a CV that's only useful for working on this area. If like the outside view, like looking at other people is that like many of them work on it partial, like only part time or they, or they go through working on that and then do something else later on. Uh, Michelle, you thought uh, that I was a, a bit too harsh on um, people who are in favor of uh, preserving naturalness or are in favor of just uh, <laughs> keeping, keeping the status quo to some extent. Um, did you think that I'm like un- underweighting the kind of philosophical arguments that, that might be in favor of just uh, non-intervention with, with nature? I think that you did give it fairly short shrift. As you know, I also don't agree with the arguments from naturalness. But I think there is something to be said for taking um, a somewhat outside view. And there are a lot of philosophers who take this kind of view very seriously. So I think that we probably shouldn't simply write off the objection as being essentially contentless. I think there's 
some inclination to do that because it feels pretty difficult to work out precisely how you draw the bounds of what things are natural and what things aren't natural because there's some sense in which humans evolve to do exactly what we do now and so presumably everything that we do is natural in some sense but i think that there is in fact going to be better ways of articulating this kind of objection yeah, that's one objection. How do you define what's natural and what's not? But I guess it's the conflation of like naturalness and goodness that, uh, that that troubles me in particular. I just don't see any reason to think that even if you can define something as natural, that that's a reason to to keep it around. You might have a sort of non-interventionalist perspective, um, which is sort of coming from a more of a do no harm. I, I think that that's a, where some of this uh, sort of more environmentalist philosophy comes from. Is like we don't want to destroy this sort of pristine environment that, that we've been handed, and we want to don't want to like do harm there. Yeah, I mean, pristine is kind of <laughs> a loaded word, <laughs> stacking the deck in favor of it. But uh, yeah, no, I know, I, I, yeah, the idea of it, it seems more intuitive to me that it would be like worse to cause harm than it is like obligatory to do good. But I guess that in that case, if you had an unnatural situation, then you might also be in favor of non-intervention. That's like a slightly different point uh, than just like preserving preserving nature. Because if you'd already changed it, then you might not want to change it back. Yeah, I think the do no harm is an interesting point, but I'd have thought that stronger than the asymmetry between it being worse to do harm than uh, good to create benefit is some worry that evolution has created some kind of somewhat unstable equilibrium and humans are really likely to uh, rush in in some way that actually is going to uh, destroy things that are creating value for them or something, which in fact we have done a bunch in the past. And so it seems kind of plausible that things have developed gradually in a way that we should um, uh, appreciate rather than being too quick to assume that we're smarter. Um, Michelle, you thought that there was a couple of different ways of potentially tackling this problem that that, that didn't really come up all that much in, in the episode. Uh, what, what were they? Yeah, I was pretty interested in a lot of the specifics that Persis gave on ways that we could make traction here. And I thought that people might not have picked up on some of the specific paths that they seem to imply. So one of them was chemistry and, and going into chemistry in order to be able to develop poisons that are particularly cost-effective ways of uh, killing animals painlessly. Because I feel that that's not something that uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers are usually focusing on. So it seems like there's a real niche for people there. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a really good point. I suppose that's also a case where objections about intervention are, uh, don't, don't really bite as much because we're already like killing so many animals using other methods. So this just like kind of changes the method rather than like changing the number potentially. Right. Yeah. And were there any others? Oh, Neil? Yeah. I worry a little bit about taking a big bet on chemistry. I agree it's like a useful field, but it doesn't have like a ton of different exit options into uh, sort of priority paths. And, mm. and so it feels like you're sort of taking quite a big bet if you go down the chemistry route. Um, and maybe that's fine if you know the wild animal suffering is your thing. But I just wanted to flag that. Yeah, that's fair. Mm -hmm. I mean, you might think of this as something that people should think about going into if they're already in chemistry. Because mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I feel I do talk to people in advising sometimes who've done a PhD in uh, physics or something like that and then decided that actually they thought that their PhD wasn't that useful and they end up wanting to move on to one of the priority paths. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. It's kind of funny that we're talking about an ethical career being developing poisons, but uh, you, one starts to wonder sometimes if uh, something hasn't gone wrong at some earlier point. But anyway, <laughs> carry on, Michelle. What, what are the other options? Some wonder it more than others, Rob. Um, yeah, so um, another I was wondering about was um, how much work to do with 
making sure that animals are killed humanely is going to end up being regulatory work that needs to be done by people with a legal background. Because again, it feels like uh, a lot of people who really care about others go into the law and, uh, and particularly in the UK where you can do your undergraduate in law might then find that their ethics shift from the area of law that they had initially planned to go into. And I wonder whether this would be um, a useful thing for people to work on. Cool. Um, yeah. What, what were some of the others? So there wasn't much discussion of psychology either, but figuring mm. out how we can get people to care about groups that aren't usually cared about does seem really important. There are a few effective altruists already working in this area. I was actually thinking about this, Rob, because you mentioned that um, you thought that people could, wouldn't be able to work on a novel area if they were the only one in it. And I think it's definitely going to be hard to do that kind of thing but there are definitely people who are making it work uh lucius caviola is a phd student at oxford and effective altruist who's recently released a paper in a pretty prestigious journal on speciesism which he was expecting would uh have real trouble gaining traction because it's not something that tends to be written about in psychology but it ended up doing really well um i think the kinds of things that you need to have there are a pretty supportive supervisor and a good understanding of how, even though this is novel for your field, it's going to be of interest to others in your field. Yeah, is, is there this factor that uh, if you're kind of the only one working on a particular thing, then perhaps it like seems very original or it can be more interesting to people than, than if you're just like plowing the same ground? So it's like if speciesism is kind of a new idea, then maybe you can kind of build a career around that. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. I think it probably depends on precisely what field you're in. So this is very much the case for philosophy, where single author articles are the norm and being confrontational and, and original is just uh, actually really important. And being the one person who thinks some particular controversial thing ends up mm. being great seems much harder in science, where you need to be publishing with uh, um, many other co-authors. But even then, it seems like it, it could be um, pretty viable. So yeah, what, what kind of, was there any particular kind of psychology research that you could envisage being being really useful here? I suppose it's just like persuasion or like how do people think about this issue? So you can, I mean, I guess I suppose you have to understand how people actually approach it and maybe how the framing affects it before you can go about persuading people on a, on a large scale. Yeah, I think that was my thought. I mean, you guys did discuss a bit um, the surveys and, and uh, the fact that it's not trivial to know whether people uh, are fine with factory farming, for example, because they think that animals don't have feelings or because they mm. think that the animals are well off. Um, it seems like it would be pretty interesting to understand uh, how people think about animal suffering. You know, do we do the same kind of empathy with animals that we do with humans? Or is there something pretty different going on where we have them in like, different classes? I imagine there's quite a lot of different questions that would be pretty useful to look into here. Yeah, and I guess you could you could kind of tinker with different scenarios with white animals and see what, what are the things that, that make people actually actually care about it. So it seems like people do care once once humans start intervening. Uh, and, and maybe it, it depends on the species and maybe different characteristics of the species, things like that. Another area that I'd be excited to see people uh, go into is, as you sort of mentioned a bit in the episode, the study of consciousness and um, sort of some of the fields around that, particularly in neuroscience, I think have this interesting dual possible tracks out of them, um, one into wild animal suffering, uh, but then they also allow you to think, start thinking about things within AI policy and then uh, possibly even 
if you go down that route, some of the weirder stuff like digital mines and uh, sort of things that might become more of an issue into the future. Cool. Yeah. Were, were there any other any other approaches that uh, that you guys kind of thought of as as, as you're going through that, uh, that 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 didn't come up? I'd be pretty interested to know how fruitful it seems to um, maybe start new effective charities, perhaps lobbying on a particular issue. So maybe lobbying in favor of more humane culling of particular animals or something. The reason I was thinking about this was based on the Center for Pesticide Suicide Prevention, Mm. which seemingly has been very successful in uh, lobbying to get rid of the um, pesticides that are most dangerous to humans. It seems like you could pick a similarly specific area and and try and uh, get some particular humane thing um, implemented. Yeah, I guess sometimes it seems like the the cost differences between different pesticides, at least in that case, were were so small that kind of uh, like a relatively small lobby group could potentially change what people are using or potentially get one banned because there just isn't that much interest in continuing to use any particular one. And then mm-hmm. that might be the case with, with, with other pesticides. I guess, I guess there's also potentially quite a, quite big returns from finding some humane way to, to, to kill fish, uh, given that we're killing, you know, billions, hundreds of billions, possibly trillions of them each year. Uh, mm-hmm. some, something better than suffocation, which uh, surely, surely is out there. Yeah, one thought here is that... Uh before people dive into setting up a, a new charity uh, in this area, um, I think there are already existing animal organizations that lobby governments on uh, a range of areas that include sort of uh, more ethical culling practices. And so it's often like quite a fair bit of work and, and a bit of a gamble to set up a new organization. And uh, people generally need to have a bunch of expertise and sort of experience if they're going to do it well. And so I think it can be better, if, especially if you're earlier on in your career, to jump on board with an existing effort and uh, sort of learn the ropes there. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Do you know any examples of these kinds of organizations? So a bunch of the organizations that say the Open Philanthropy Project has been funding in the animal welfare space are aware of issues like, for example, uh, preventing the speed up of the lines that are used when culling uh, chickens. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if they also had on their radar sort of uh, culling of other animals and sort of especially in a factory farming context. But really, this is not my area of expertise. Um, I thought uh, both of you had some uh, ideas for ways to kind of break into this field that that you thought perhaps uh, were were, were under-discussed in the episode. Uh, what, what, What were they? Yeah, one of the ones that I'm a huge fan of is just cold emailing people. I mean, I think reaching out to Georgia Ray was someone who was cited several times in the episode, Brian Tomasic, um, even Persis. And uh, not just saying something like, hey, let's catch up, but um, approaching with, with a sort of specific question. Ideally, you've sort of maybe even done some, some background writing and reading in the area and uh, indicating sort of how they can add value to you in some research project or in your career or something like that, I think is often quite a valuable way to sort of get that initial step into the field. Um, and it's something that uh, I've done in the area of AI policy several times. Yeah, I think people in uh, particularly these kinds of fields that are pretty small are actually really keen to hear from other people who would be interested to work on their area as long as it's clear that the person is taking things seriously enough that they've really thought about things and come up with a specific ask. Yeah, one one other suggestion I had, um, I guess maybe slightly disagreeing with purposes, where in the episode she thought it was maybe a little hard for people to get involved as volunteers and sort of involved doing useful work on their own. I was going to argue that there are actually a whole bunch of sort of small empirical projects that could be quite helpful here. And these might just be like a few days of work and writing it up somewhere like a, a forum like the Effective Altruism Forum or on your own blog. Things like uh, sort of 
I don't know, updating and extending some work that Luke Mulhauser did on neuron counts in different parts of the brain in different animals and sort of the arguments for and against neuron counts in different parts of the brain being like a relevant thing. Uh, there's sort of intervention reports on specific different interventions and just diving into some of the details on there. My guess is there's like a whole bunch of different points where you can start making small amounts of progress in the field and then just writing up your work online and sort of starting a conversation on them I think is a good way of getting yourself noticed. That sounds great to me. It's really providing value to the community and is also giving you some sense of how much you would actually enjoy working in this area. I also think it could be um, a good way of testing out whether if you already think that you want to do research within wild animal suffering, whether you want to do it in the context uh, more like a charity or whether you prefer to do it somewhere like academia, because those two can be pretty different while uh, doing this for a charity like Rethink Priorities will end up having uh, pretty concrete questions to be answered that are quite close to providing value. They'll often be trying to answer fairly broad questions quite quickly, whereas going into academia can allow you to uh, dive really deeply and become more of an expert in a specific area. And Neil, uh, do you have any ideas of uh, what steps you might take if you wanted to work on wild animal welfare from, from a policy point of view? I'm not sure, not sure how practical that is. Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the things that first comes to mind to me is uh, just what jurisdiction is going to be most important in this area? And uh, it's something I don't have a good sense of, but my guess would be that some areas of the world are going to have uh, policy processes that are more easy to influence, that have jurisdiction over sort of a lot of different animals in the wild, whereas others might be more competitive, um, maybe because they're more dense urban areas that are going to have influence over fewer animals in the wild. And um, so just mapping that out, I imagine, could be quite useful. And then in terms of taking your first steps into policy, obviously sort of a case of reading up a bunch. Uh, if you end up going into UK policy, we'd definitely recommend the UK Civil Service Fast Stream as a way of getting started here. Also, the UK is one of the places where you could start doing sort of more pioneering work on, say, fish culling standards and uh, hope that that work is then used as best practice that is sort of spread out to other places around the world. Why is the UK such a good place to work on that? Yeah, my impression is that the UK uh, has somewhat stronger animal protection laws. And uh, another thing is that right at the moment um, with Brexit, one of the one of the upsides of Brexit for British policymaking is that it's allowing the UK to rehaul a lot of its agriculture policies and think more about them in terms of environmental services. And so uh, I think there's like a lot of room for innovation in UK policy in uh, agriculture and uh, related fields at the moment. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that the UK uh, pulls Europe in a direction of being more humane to animals, because I tend to think of places like Germany and the Netherlands as, as being typically more left-wing than the UK, um, and the left-wing being better on animal rights. But it seems like that's not, in fact, the case. Yeah, it is funny, is it? Uh, I mean, it could just be kind of a, an Anglo-cultural thing. There's like a particular concern for animals. Uh, that, yeah, it could, could just be kind of idiosyncratic. It's, it's also like oddly bipartisan um, in, in the UK. It seems like that it hasn't become kind of a left-right issue in the same way that it... Uh, maybe also just that possibly the farm lobby is weaker or something in the UK compared to some of these other countries. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure. Um, one of the hypotheses that I had when thinking about this on climate change uh, was that the Conservative Party in Britain is uh, very pro-environment. And uh, and because of that reason, sort of has better relationships with um, the farmers union and places like that. Uh, and and because of these relationships might be able to negotiate sort of better farming standards. I'm not sure. 
I noticed in this episode we're talking so, so much about academic field building as kind of the the way to like set out on on starting to solve this this problem as a as a species. Uh, it's not kind of not the first time that we've been interested in academic field building. It seems to kind of come up again and again with all of these like niche issues that we're uh, that we're trying to pioneer. I suppose. Do, do you think that it's just the case that uh, building academic fields is incredibly useful um, and that that is often a best a good first step, or is it is it possible that we're just that we know too much about academia and so we're just biased towards well? Obviously, the way you start solving a problem is to build an academic field. Is, is there some possible some possible bias here? There's certainly strong reasons why you might think that it's uh, an important way to go. Academics are often the people that policy makers go to uh, when they want to work out what framework to use. Universities are where all of our uh, future leaders are taught and they tend to have good access to the media. So I guess it, it feels unsurprising to me that if you want to make a really long run change, then you want academia to be properly on board with the change that you're trying to make in society. Yeah, I think another thing that we can see from sort of uh, past case studies is that when academia is not on board, it's uh, quite easy to stumble when trying to create a sort of new field of endeavor, particularly one that is uh, sort of pushing the boundaries on empirical claims that uh, sort of science would have something to say about. Yeah, I guess if you if you kind of break down society into different kinds of institutions, you've got like businesses. So, I mean, are they going to pioneer any of this? Like in most cases, not. And you've got like government, uh, maybe, but uh, most of the time not because like the, there's not enough pressure from voters to prioritize it over other things. Then kind of what do you got net left? you got like, like a civil society, kind of nonprofits and, and academia. Uh, and I suppose, yeah, like, so we're thinking about both nonprofits and academia. So, so maybe, maybe those are just like the, the only places that you can really get this, the, the, the ball rolling on something as, as, as unusual as this. We're also talking about an area where there's just a huge amount of knowledge that we don't yet have mm. that would be crucial for actually solving the area. And academia is just absolutely full of really smart researchers. So it's unsurprising that you would want its resources to be um, put towards this. Yeah, I think uh, there's a whole lot of research on this academic field building stuff, uh, which I think people in effective altruism and I know the Open Philanthropy Project's been, been looking into this, uh, which to, to my shame, I, I haven't really, really yet read. Um, have either of you uh, like read any particularly interesting articles about that, that that we should link to? Yeah, I think there's also, if you want a more accessible introduction, there's um, quite a nice piece on the uh, Center for Effective Altruism website by Kerry Vaughan on the rise of the neoliberals. They're thought of as a really good example where they kind of set out an explicit plan to turn uh, economics, academia from being broadly socialist to being neoliberal. There's a pretty good academic paper on um, how this uh, works as well. I can't remember right now, but I can send it to you and you can put it up. Cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks thanks for making time to to chat about this episode, guys. I hope hope you enjoyed it. Thanks, Rob. Really good. Thanks, Rob. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you next week.